Again, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the City Council's informal, well, in this case, it's not informal, but the City Council's budget work session. Uh, I will ask first if the, uh, Mr. Clark, if you would please read the emergency evacuation announcement, followed by the roll call. Upon activation of the emergency alarm signal, all persons should immediately exit the building. Please use the exit to the left or right front of the council chamber or the east-west stairway outside the rear doors of the chamber. Do not use the elevators or the escalator. After exiting the building, proceed to the assembly area located in the parking lot, bordered by Clay, 8th, and 9th Streets. Citizens and employees should assist visually in hearing impaired visitors with exiting the building. There will be no opportunity for public comment during this meeting. Madam President, for the record, Members currently who are currently present are Ms. Jordan, Ms. Nye, Mr. Jones, Vice President Robertson, as well as yourself. You do have a quorum of council. Thank you, Madam Clerk. With that, we will begin with our presentations uh, for this afternoon. <clears throat> Excuse me, the first pre presentation will be by Mr. May, Director of our budget and strategic planning uh, department, Mr. May. Thank you very much. Mr. President Newville, Vice President Robertson, members of council. My name is Jason May. I'm the uh, Director of Budget and Strategic Planning for the City of Richmond. <clears throat> and I'm going to be walking you through an overview of the uh, CIP for FY 2023 through FY 2027. I want to start off by laying out how we went through this process this year. Um, my team and I have been working on the FY 23 budget process since June. I, I gave my team three weeks off after the uh, passage of the FY22 budget. Then we came together for a uh, budget retreat in uh, June of uh, last year. In August, we did the CIP kickoff. Uh, we started the submission process at that point, Tom. In September, we met with the debt manager and members of our team to discuss funding and strategy discussions, um, walking through those. In October, we got the submissions back from the departments. And in November, we did something a little bit different this year. So we had pulled together all of the departments and the project managers, and we had them do a budget presentation, a departmental presentation on the CIP task force. Um, in January, we pulled together to deliberate some of those uh, presentations that we had seen. In February, we finalized the CIP, and in March, we came and gave a presentation. Looking at what a capital project is, um, so a capital project is a, is a project that extends, uh, that goes over one reporting period. I often make the analogy of a single use versus a multi-use. Single use is your annual plan. At the end of the year, the annual plan is going to be done. We're going to move the rest of the funding for that to the unrestricted fund balance. You're done. Capital projects span multiple years. So we're going to be using that for not just one year. These are buildings. These are oftentimes things that we're going to use not just for two or three years, but oftentimes for five, 20, 25, 60 years if it's a school. Um, a plan, why we put this in a plan is because we're looking at you're going to adopt the FY23 CIP, but we also often look at what the next four years are going to be. These CIPs are incredibly complicated. We're using multiple funding sources and multiple different departments. We're going to be doing projects over multiple years. 
So we want to be able to show not just what you're going to do this year, but what you have on the plan for the next four years going forward. I came to the city of Richmond, did my due diligence, and one of the things I looked at and saw as I was looking to, to come and be a part of this team is this narrative of unfinished business, uh, incomplete projects, not getting things done. I want to change that narrative. Um, in the front of your book this year, you're seeing at the very front section is a, a completed project section. This is new for FY23. Over the, for calendar year 2021, we completed over 20 projects. Um, we did Abner Clay Park, a Police Property and Evidence Center, and Hardy Park and Family Life Center, Forest Hill Avenue. You see pictures of those uh, projects up on this board. Again, 20 projects in one year is a, a fairly uh, good year for CIP to be able to get that done. We also want to manage expectations. So my first year, we had 64 active projects. Over the past three years, we've added an additional 20 projects. Now, some of that we will discuss in length as we go through this. But of those 84, six have had little to no activity due to insufficient funding. 25 are maintenance or innovation projects that are going to be closed by the end of this fiscal year. We are switching how we look at our maintenance projects for FY23. 46 of those projects are related to transportation. Those should have projected end dates. Those are uh, active projects that we have on our list. And seven are going to require additional funding to get complete. You're going to see ONRs coming over the coming weeks to be able to get funding over to those projects to get that complete this year. One of the other things that we're looking to try to do this year is redefine the strategy to the CIP. Um, we're going to talk, talk at length about start and end to projects. We have a need to have few ongoing projects, but nine times out of ten when we have a capital project, we want it to have a start and an end date so that we can complete it, close it out, and add it to our fixed asset list. We're going to have some new categorizations for our projects this year. In years past, there's been a direct crosswalk between the fiscal plan and the CIP. Um, one of the things we're looking at this year is, is putting it into different categories around maintenance, transportation, and investment. So we'll walk through those as well. And last but not least is our mantra that we are starting to bring from our uh, budget office is we want to plan, fund, complete, and close out CIP projects. We want projects to get through the CIP project and be put into the fixed asset and start to be used by our, our uh, city staff. Along that Along that strategy, one of the things that you'll notice this year is the, the addition of a capital project planning. Um, this is a $10 million uh, line of credit that we're going to use to be able to plan large-scale projects for the city. Um, what this does is it gives us better definition of project costs and scopes. It increases our long-term uh, financial planning and management of our debt affordability. It creates greater accountability, and it minimizes project cost overruns. This is a GFOA best practice. When we're forming the project pipeline, we're looking at how is the project pipeline produced? What are the adopted policies and master plans that we have in place? What are the capital need assessments? What's the feasibility to be able to complete our due diligence? As we're creating a revolving capital fund, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to fund planning efforts first before the construction. This gives us the ability to, to ensure that we have better uh, understanding of what the full cost of these projects are going to be once we get to completion for them. This uh, line of credit is reimbursable if the project does move forward. We can pull that funding back, reimburse ourselves with our geo bond issuance, and it frees up the line of credit to be able to be able to plan additional projects going forward. And again, this has been coordinated with our bond council and our financial advisors. 
One of the other things you'll notice in this year's uh, CIP is there there is uh, more general fund cash going to the CIP. Um, back in June of this of last year, council passed uh, resolution R023, which set a goal of three percent of the general fund revenues for cash contributions to CIP. For this year alone, that would be $25 million. We're not there yet. It's going to take us a couple of years to be able to get to that place. For this year, we have $10 million. Um, and I want to make sure that uh, I think that our, F, our financial advisors did a fairly good job of walking you through this. But more cash in the CIP is positively reviewed, viewed by our rating agencies. It provides more debt affordability. And it's a GFOA best practice. To be able to, to, to show an example of that. We have a debt of $10 million, and we pay that off over five years for a, a short-term debt, and we are paying for, for vehicles. We only want to finance our vehicles for five years because after five years, the useful life of them have, have gone that way. So we don't want to be paying debt 10 years down the road for a vehicle that we no longer have in service. So over those five years, we're going to pay back $10.5 million. That's the $10 million in principal and the $5 million in, in interest, or excuse me, the half a million in interest. For that same $10 million, if we were building a building using 20-year debt over that five-year period, we would only spend 3.5. This is how we begin to bring strategy into our CIP so that we can begin using cash to pay for the short-term uh, assets, vehicles, equipment, things that are going to last, but last just a few years, five, 10 years is, is all we can expect out of most of our vehicles. When we're looking at, at uh, buildings, we're looking at 20, often 50, 60, 70 years. So we can afford to be able to go to the 20-year debt on that because the life, useful life of that asset is going to well exceed the, the, the uh, debt financing tool that we're using to be able to fund it. This, again, shows the difference between $7 million that we would have to not spend if we would use our geo bond debt excuse me, uh, for a 20-year debt as opposed to a five-year debt. What we're using with our $10 million this year is we are purchasing vehicles and equipment. Again, last year we purchased about, we we're in the process of purchasing about $7 million worth of vehicles that is used in short-term debt. Um, this year we're using it to do 10 million and we're uh, putting it towards police, fire, and solid waste uh, pickup. Again, RFD's average fleet age is 12 years. And in calendar year 2021, RFD 10 times had no backup, had no uh, reserves, which means in Chief Carter's in the audience can correct me if I'm wrong, but what that means is that if they received another call at that moment in time, they would have to go to mutual aid. They'd have to go to another surrounding county to be able to ask for assistance in that situation. They have no reserves to be able to do that. RPD currently has 473 patrol vehicles that are five years or older. Again, think about your car and how much wear and tear you put on your car in five years, and then think about how much wear and tear an RPD officer does that. These, are, these cars are oftentimes driven 24 hours a day. But again, five years into it, those, those vehicles have, used their, have seen their useful life. Again, the breakdown of the 2023 citywide CIP, again, you are going to be passing the 23 uh, year of the five-year CIP. We look at our wastewater utility. Again, CSO is up there. It's going to continue to be a very large driver of our wastewater utility over the coming years. We have water, and we start to see some of the breakout of the categorization. We have capital transportation, federal, uh, state, and regional, our stormwater utility, capital transportation for our geobonds. 
gas utilities, and we have a capital maintenance program. In the past, these, these maintenance pro projects have been strewn across the CFP. Some have been in public safety, some have been in parks and rec, they've been in other places, and it's been difficult to really show what the maintenance projects are. So this year we're putting it into a, a maintenance program to be able to specifically isolate out what is the maintenance projects that we are working on this year. We've discussed the capital planning program, capital vehicles, equipment, and we have a capital investment program. This is where we're trying to invest in our city and bring new assets online. And then we finally have a capital education program. Looking at the general fund, again, capital uh, is broken out. We have the maintenance. We have those uh, laid out there for you. Again, this is in tens of millions of dollars, so please don't think that we're only spending $35 this year on capital transportation. We look at our capital investment. Um, there's two projects this year because, again, we are we are going to walk through this, but our capital maintenance and our capital fleet have very large liabilities. Those are going to be the major push for the coming years. We need to invest in, in additional facilities. This year we are putting Fire Station 12, being able to start that project to be able to build a new fire station uh, in, in addition to the other projects. We need to continue that. We need to push to be able to continue to reinvest in the city. This year, this CIP has $28 million over the five years for the Enslaved African Heritage Campus. and also has funding for the Percent for the Arts. And you can see on the bottom of the screen, on the left-hand side is the, uh, the um, artist rendition of the Hillside uh, Playground Art Installation. On the right side is the Skate Park Installation over at the Southside Community Center. And then the middle is the uh, artist rendition of the uh, Enslaved African Heritage Campus um, when it's finally done. Looking at schools, RPS is proposed to receive $2.5 million each year of the five-year CIP. For context, the RPS has 51 schools, not all of which they have uh, maintenance responsibilities for. When we counter that with our capital maintenance for the city, we have 73 facilities and we have 2.4 million square feet of, uh, of building that we have to maintain. Currently have a $281 million immediately deferred capital maintenance on these facilities. And what we're doing this year is we're creating one award that's going to have several projects. And I don't want to be too terribly wonky about the accounting, but what this does is I think it matches up with some of the transparency that we're trying to do. We're going to have one project that's going to have multiple, uh, one award, multiple projects underneath it. In two years, once we get these done, we can come back to you and provide a report. Again, this is part of our process to be able to have a start and an end to our capital projects. No ongoing projects. We have City Hall and other projects that have been around for multiple years. We want to get to a place where if we're going to fix the HVAC at the 730 building, we're going to say that we're going to fix the HVAC at the 730 building. We're going to do it. And then we're going to come back to you and report on what we were able to accomplish on that. Again, getting back to those completed projects and bringing those back to you to be able to report out on. The effects of deferred maintenance. Again, 281 million is a large number. Um, just over the past uh, 18 months, we've had days where we've had to close City Hall because of HVAC issues. We've had to close Theater Road because of HVAC issues. This past summer, we had a flood issue um, with that. These are the direct effects of some of this deferred capital maintenance that we've seen within the city of Richmond over the past decade. Furthermore, one of the things that we need to talk about over the coming weeks and months and years is that right now for every dollar of, of, of geobond uh, CIP money that we have for our CIP, 51 cents goes to schools facilities. 49 cents goes to city projects. Not just maintenance, that's everything. That's our transportation, that's our investment, that is everything that we do. We get 49 cents out of every dollar, so schools get 51 cents. 
every dollar that we put of geo bond towards the five year CIP at this point in time, 51 cents goes to RPS, 49 cents goes to the city. Again, 2.5 million does not look like an awful lot for capital maintenance year over year over year, but that is excluding the 200 million that we have in FY24 for new school construction. We have $398 million in geo bond debt over the five years for the general fund. 212 million and 500,000 goes to schools. That's one of the driving factors of this. We have to be able to get ourselves back into balance. Capital transportation. I'm somewhat setting up my friends and colleagues that are going to bring uh, presentations to you here going forward. We have 17 million in complete streets. That's 12 million of geo bond fund and 5 million of funding coming from the Central Virginia Trans Transportation Authority and CVTA. Over the past five years, if this 17 million is included in the FY23 budget, we will have pushed $70 million into paving for the city of Richmond. And my, my colleague, Mr. Vincent, is going to walk you through and be able to show you how that's been able to improve the, uh, the road conditions for the city. Additionally, one of the reasons why we are separating out both the geo bond and the, the, the federal and state funding is, is this slide right here. So over the past six years, our friends and colleagues in DPW have taken 21 million of city funds and turned that into $471 million worth of city, uh, worth of capital transportation investments within the city. That is huge. That, that is a, a massive amount of le leveraging. And what we want to be able to continue to do is not just increase that leveraging, but to be able to bring the CVTA dollars in, to be able to bring some additional strategy to our CIP so that we can continue to leverage as much outside dollars as we possibly can to bring into the city. So that's $450 million worth of geo bond debt or city funds that we didn't have to spend to be able to do these projects. These are oftentimes very large projects. Whole Street's going to have a number of different projects that are federal and state funded that are going towards that. Again, long-term planning, these are multiple departments working on our transportation plan. We're utilizing GEO bond, Central Virginia Transportation Authority, federal, state, and regional funding. We're also incorporating economic development projects, multifamily residential projects, utility planning, small area plans into the plan. So again, if you're coming east on Broad Street right now and you're going to turn left onto Hamilton where that new, uh, the L is at the landing uh, residential, mixed-use residential is right there, look at that left-hand turning lane. They've, there's been so many jump trucks that have made a left-hand turn there into that mixed-use residential that they have pushed the asphalt up onto the median. That's why we want to make sure that we are incorporating the economic development, the mixed use, and all of these other massive development projects because they bring dump trucks, they bring cranes, they bring other things to them. And we don't want to destroy roads that we just went and paved with this. We also want to use include utility cuts as we go through this. If we're going to put the, the scarce resources that we have towards paving, we want to make sure that we're paving and that that paving is going to remain intact for the foreseeable future. Breaking down of our, our non-general fund CIP, looking at FY23, again, you can look and see wastewater has a, a, a very, very high utilization. Water, stormwater, and gas utilities, we'll walk through each of those. Again, the gas mains for FY23, there's uh, approximately the plan is to replace approximately 120,000 feet of gas mains and 2,000 services will be replaced. Again, I do want to note for you, though, that this is funded through a mixture of debt and cash. Again, our friends in the enterprise funds have been able to work through their uh, their financial advisors to be able to increase their use of cash. And we can see that the four of the top six capital uh, categorizations are in the enterprise fund. 
and they don't generally have that much higher of a uh, of a budget than we do. It's just they have been able to put strategy into this. They have cash on hand to be able to push some of these projects out there. We look at the water mains and service. Again, we're at 51% debt, 25% pay as you go, and capital reserve of 24%. They're going to be replacing 58,000 feet of water mains and about 400 services over the, the coming year. You can see some of the, uh, the projects that are laid out on the, uh, the graph for you. Wastewater and CSO, again, 421 million over a five-year CIP, and that is not enough to be able to get it done. There's still a gap. Um, for FY23, the construction will continue uh, to be on the major plant, the CSO and the sanitary sewer projects, and then we have those laid out here for you as well. Stormwater, again, this is a, a push to be able to continue to work on our drainage issues within the city. You can see a number of these projects here. Again, newer fund, so we have a little bit higher usage of debt at 70%, a little bit lower at uh, pay-as-go of 11%. Again, Stormwater is working to be able to get their financial house in order and to be able to get to a place where they are pushing more cash towards their, their projects. Last but not least, looking to the future. Again, I, I, I know I may sound like a broken record, but increasing the cash contribution of the general fund to the CFP to the adopted policy levels. Again, I, I've, we, we've talked about this internally within our department. We are not in a position where we're going to be able to borrow our way out of the deferred capital maintenance and the deferred fleet liability. Deferred fleet liability is 181 million and it's 281 million for capital maintenance. We are not going to be able to borrow almost another half a billion dollars to be able to catch up on that. We need to use strategy and cash and, and alternative financing to be able to get to a place where we can catch up. We need to use cash for vehicles, equipments, and maintenance. Again, when we get to a place where we can get to that 25 million, not only would that be able to fund our transportation, our equipment needs, but we'd also be able to do our maintenance this year. This year we have 15.6 million in maintenance items. So if we had the 25 million this year, we would be able to do 10 million in vehicles and 15 million in maintenance. That 15 million in maintenance, again, continues to push our borrowing capacity, our borrowing capability higher. And it also is a best practice because if we're going to replace an HVAC unit that has a 15-year life period, we don't want to use 20-year debt to be able to replace that. Because then the final five years, we're paying debt on an item that we no longer are using. We want to make sure that we're bringing that kind of that strategy to this. Again, we want to leverage federal and state regional local funds for our transportation projects. And then last but not least, again, the mantra of plan, fund, complete, and close out projects. Um, we have projects that are still on our active project list and are part of your uh, council reports that you receive on a quarterly basis that date back to FY12. Um, we should not have projects with this at this point in stage of our CIP development that are lasting 10 years. We have to get to a place where we are planning these uh, projects, where we're funding these projects to completion. And then when we are completing them and closing them out and moving them to the fixed asset list that Ms. White keeps and be able to put staff into those places. We want to make sure that we're putting the capital assets to use. With that, I'm more than happy to try to answer any questions that anyone may have. Mr. May, thank you for what is uh, certainly a comprehensive um, overview. Uh, first question, Councilwoman Lynch. Thank you. CIP is our favorite topic up here. Um, so um, where to start? So you mentioned that we had um, a considerable amount of, of unfinished, I guess, CIP projects. What was the total dollar amount? I don't have the, the ready, man, but I can pull that and give it to you. Okay. So 
you know, a big hallmark of our ARP ARPA plan is essentially adding $78 million worth of CIP projects to our budget. Um, not saying that those aren't wonderful and necessary um, buildings and maybe hopefully services that come along down the road. But I mean, we're, you know, adding these assets into the portfolio and you're telling me that we have failed to budget for maintenance um, for our, I know we have because I've been here a couple years and I see it um, because our dollars are so limited. I mean, what, what is the plan ongoing into the future? I mean, we, we've got community centers that are falling apart now. And so how are we going to plan for all of the capital improvement projects that are now being instituted through ARPA? And I mean, I get Southside Community Center was already a part of the CI plan, so that makes sense. Um, Calhoun was already part of the was in the works, so that makes sense. But the other additional, you know, 40-something million dollars of community centers that were unplanned, I mean, do we have a plan to budget for maintenance ongoing? And likewise, you know, on the programmatic side, we're talking about a fairly heavy investment, too. That's not your answer. But, but um, you know, just pointing out the fact that that's something we need to contemplate, and then how does that fit into the overall larger picture of all of our um, our community center assets that we have around the city that tend to have a pretty and will continue to have a pretty significant um, need for budgeted maintenance. So to answer your question, uh, the, the city has a number of assets that are on the books that need to have a go, no go decision on those. Um, how do we move forward with those uh, particular projects? One is the building that we're in right now. Um, with regards to City Hall, and do we maintain this? Um, how much does it cost to fully renovate the City Hall versus how much does it cost to build a new City Hall? Those are some of the decisions that will lead to some of the questions, that, uh, to answers, uh, some of the questions that you, you've laid out. Um, as far as some of the community centers are, are concerned, um, one of the things that we've done over the past eight months is we've worked with our financial advisors to build a budget model. Um, is a five-year budget model. And so as we work with our public safety partners around SAFER and COP grants, we can put into the out years uh, the expected cost of some of those uh, grants. Um, SAFER grants are usually firefighting grants that you get uh, firefighters for the first two or three years at a where they pay for 75% of it, you pay for 25, then you have to have a responsibility three, four years down the road. We want to plan for that. We want to make sure that we have those on. We're doing the same thing right now with the community center. So we're not only building into our process the ability to maintain those uh, because we want to maintain the actual buildings themselves, but we're also working with our friends in Parks and Rec to be able to understand what the staffing needs would be for that, to be able to make sure that we're staffing those correctly, making sure that they have the programming and the, uh, the activities and the service level that's necessary to be able to do it. The other piece is, is that when we build new, um, you oftentimes have a little bit of a grace period. Um, you know, the first five years, generally, you don't have to do an awful lot of upkeep on it. Again, but we want to make sure that we don't get too terribly far down the road without having a plan in place. So that's what we're building now. Again, in budget, as I mentioned earlier, we, we start in June talking about what you're going to be doing in May. 
Um, and, and so we're here now in, in calendar year 22 talking about what we're going to be doing in calendar year 2026. That's the nature of budgeting is constantly looking forward and being four or five years down the road, making sure that we don't have anything that's missed on that. So while I can't speak to what has happened in the past, I can tell you right now that I have a team of eight people that is upstairs listening to this right now who have firm grasp on what those long-term costs are going to be. Councilwoman Nye. Um, thank you. And I, all the things that Councilmember Lynch just asked, um, I appreciate because I had same questions, but I do have additional ones. Um, okay. So the, you know, when you're talking about um, projects that are open, Jank Road is on that list. Yes, it has, when I started on council five plus years ago, I was told the like I think we actually put out an announcement that the project was going to start and it still hasn't started and um, all I've heard is there's utility work that hasn't been done and I just hate that we're tying up all of this I mean I want the project to happen I'm not trying to get rid of the project however if we have a realistic time frame does it make sense to move that debt around and I mean, if if the road can, if this project is not going to start for three years and we have all this money tied up, does it make sense to put it somewhere else until the project actually starts? So I, I'm sorry, I'm trying to I'm trying to visualize that page in my head and I'm, I'm struggling with that. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that the Janky Road is a uh, state project. I believe that that is a smart scale uh, project. And so the majority of that funding is not city funds. Um, the matching funds would be the only funds that we would be able to move around in that particular case. And again, as I, I spoke earlier, we want to make sure that we're reaching out with our utility partners, with our um, with, with the economic development community to make sure that we have an understanding of not just what's going to be happening within the next year or two with that within that particular road, but what's going to be happening five, ten years down the road. Because the last thing we want to do is to be able to go and do a paving project and then three weeks later come and do a utility cut for that because it, it somewhat counter it, it defeats the purpose of doing it in the first place. I can tell you, but what I can do is I can pull together with my partners from DPW and get you some information around the Chankley Road project. Okay. Yeah, it would be great if we had something formal to communicate to the community because they've certainly been asking since I've been around. And, um, you know, I just keep saying utility work, but we've, there's got to be an end in sight. Hopefully. We will get that information and bring okay. it back to you now. And my second question, um, so there what is a beacon at Cherokee and um, and Huguenot mm -hmm. that we were planning on turning into a traffic signal. Um, and I don't know if it's, I would assume it would come from capital dollars, but I don't know if it's necessarily a project because I think the funds are actually somewhat minimal. Um, so just a question if that's planning on getting funded this year, because when the beacon was installed, I think they installed all of the um, infrastructure to change it to a traffic signal down the road. 
Again, I can't speak to that specific project uh, at this time and place. Uh, what I can tell you is, is that there's traffic installation projects that uh, utilize both uh, state and federal funds to be able to do that with some local funds. Um, I can check with our friends in DPW to see if that particular uh, light is being scheduled to be done this year or if it's in the five year plan as well so you can know when it will be done. Okay, and um, if you all could just let me know before we're slated to put in amendments. Okay, I think. Broadwell, Department of Public Works. We have the Cherokee and Huguenot Road uh, full traffic signal in the proposed CIP for new signals. Okay, and that's, I'm sorry, um, that's for the upcoming fiscal year? FY23, yes. Okay, all right, great. Thank you. Mr. May, uh, is that? Mr. May, <clears throat> just a quick question. You indicated uh, that we have the 73. Uh, facilities. Uh, do we have some sense of the condition and plan of action relative to those facilities at this point? Have we started that yes, process? I believe that may be the very next presentation that's coming up after. Uh, this is wonderful. Okay. Some Any other questions? Okay, then a couple of other questions for yes, you before we go to Mr. Steidel. Um, Councilman Jones. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Madam President. Mr. Uh, may appreciate your um, your presentation. Um, just off the top, do you know you, you said on slide six uh, that we have six projects that do not have sufficient funding? Do you know the top six, or you, do you know those six off the top of your head? I don't, but we can provide those after uh, we can provide those for all the members of council after the conclusion of today's workshop. And then the seven that require additional funding, that would be appreciative as we well. We can provide those as well, sir. Okay. Um, a lot of other questions will, will, will pertain to um, DPW, but as it relates to CIP spending um, and equity and just in certain level of uniformity um, that my desire is to be able to look at a street and not tell which part of the city I'm in, uh, regardless of the houses or anything of that nature. Um, I want to be able to look at a street and say all the streets are similar. Um, and so there's a trend that has been started on um Forest Hill Avenue that I that as we get down the whole street in other areas um that we keep that same that same practice the same type of deliverables because you know and again you know we're, we're hearing different things that certain things are are a little more difficult to, to upkeep than others but then we move and see what's going on in a different part of the city and we have those same, you know, we have, we're, we're left with some of the same questions. And again, some of this I'll just address, uh, 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 the folk from DPW as they, as they come. Last question, last comment. What impact has ARPA had on our CIP? Because if there are projects, especially if you look at Southside Community Center, that was in the queue for 24, 25, 26, right? And so that, conceivably 
in in my estimation, removed ARPA dollars that aired, groundbreaking this year, all that fun stuff, right? Yes, sir. How are we able to track um, <laughs> the impact of ARPA on our CIP? Because again, the plan is, and, and I hear my colleagues saying that, okay, new projects came online, but with an, with an, with an existing project that should have gone offline, that should put others uh, in the queue. Yes. So I'm just trying to track where those are, having a little difficulty doing that. So I just wanted to wait till uh, uh, our presentation here to kind of talk about that and where and how you can direct us uh, uh, to find that information. So if I could take your first question first around the equitable, uh, the equity question. Um, I will say that there are three uh, state and federal projects around Hull Street. Um, one is a street street project that takes from the mayor bridge up to, I believe, 9th Street, if I'm not mistaken. A little fuzzy at the moment. Um, but it does streetscape, um, and the goal is to make Hull Street from Mayo to Ninth look like Broad from uh, from here into uh, to uh, Belvedere, um, and that's the goal is to be able to get to a place where we are starting to be able to not see the difference between the streets depending on where the location is. Um, again, those are federal and state funding uh, programs that will take it all the way out, I believe, to Arizona Road, if I'm not mistaken. But that is in the CIP. There's three federal uh, projects for the Hull Street. Um, as far as the ARPA and its impact on CIP, it, it has two impacts. Um, the, the first is, uh, is the, to your point, the uh, Southside Community Center. And it's not, it's not explicitly detailed out in the CIP book. It's something we can probably bring in a future ARPA report for you to be able to, uh, to isolate that out. But yes, we did have $8 million of Southside Community Center programmed into the out years of the FY22 through 26 uh, CIP. Those funds were able to be reutilized in other places, um, oftentimes, to be honest with you, in maintenance uh, accounts. To be able to increase our maintenance line, I believe that the lowest amount of maintenance that we have is 10 million in any of the five years. Again, trying to get caught up on some of those past uh, uh, deferred capital. The other would be in the transportation field to be able to get to a place where we are catching both RFD and RPD up to speed on where they need to be with their um, with their apparatus and their equipment. Um, the other way that ARPA is affecting the CIP is in cost avoidance. Um, to um, Councilwoman Lynch's point, uh, Calhoun was already somewhat being discussed. Um, now we don't have to pay for it. Um, we have ARPA funds to be able to do that. So that is a, a form of cost avoidance where we don't have to go in and be able to pay for the upkeep of it. ARPA is going to be able to allow us to do that. That in turn allows us, maybe not in this five-year CIP plan, because Calhoun may have been out a little bit, but in the next four to five years can begin to layer in additional projects on top of that because we don't have to pay to to upfit uh, Calhoun. We don't have to pay to do TV Smith or Deluxe Field or some of these other projects, especially some of the uh, planning projects within ARPA. Those are going to pay, be able to provide deliverables to the city that we can then in turn use a strategy to be able to make, our, make the best use of our limited resources. Uh, it, it, the ARPA is having two effects on the CFP. Again, being able to utilize some of the currently funded uh, um, funding there to be able to reallocate that out. But it also is cost avoidance because now we don't have to go spend that $70 million uh, to be able to do these uh, community centers, to, to be able to upfit some of these uh, the, the city services that need to be in place. But we just don't currently have the ability to do that. Um, so that that allows us to avoid that cost, to then take that funding and be able to put it into it. It almost doubles up your money, if you will. If you could add that into your ARPA report, I'm not going to ask that you would bring something back to this particular context or this particular venue. Um, but again, I think it's just a good story to share that 
because of ARPA dollars. Again, new projects online, that's great, but I think it's important that we're able to show, Madam President, how projects that were taken offline, where those dollars went, what the impact is, um, and that would just be good to good to track. Yes, sir. I am with you today at five to do an ARPA report. I won't have it for that report, but the next time we come back together in July, we'll have that information. Thank you. Councilwoman Jordan, did you have your hand up before? I and sure did. Councilwoman Lynch. Thank you so much. Yeah, I have a, a few questions here. Um, circling back to the, the idea and the theme of finishing what we started and closing things off. Um, was there any ability to try and pay off the Coliseum and the Carpenter Center earlier? Those were ones that had really long, you know, tail edges in our long-term debt impacts slide. The, the Coliseum is a, is a larger conversation um, because of the, the nature and trying to either see about selling it or demoing it, it, what the future of that uh, particular parcel involves and, and the debt that's involved with it. Um, it. To date, we've not talked about early payoff um, simply because there's so many needs that we have as a city. Um, when we get to some of those places, we've we've had some early discussions on uh, FY24 um, to be able to bring some of those strategies back, but that was not part of our strategy for FY23. We didn't want to uh, bite off too much more than we could chew with trying to bring in the capital planning, bringing in cash, and changing up some of the categorization. We didn't reject the notion that we're bringing too much in at one time. Okay, a um, couple other questions. So. The idea of trying to be really strategic, um, there is a lot, there are a lot of dollars tied up in the gas utility lines, you know, and I understand that's a federal mandate. We've got to be, you know, current on what the regulations are, and that's great. We don't want dangerous lines out there. Um, but there's also a very real and in, in, in increasing trend of people transitioning off of gas utility to electric. And are you guys doing that? Is anyone doing the strategic thinking of looking at which lines we're replacing and what the cost is to replace that versus just buying out customers and maybe swapping out their um, their appliances to electric, that kind of thing? So that'd be like one general overarching question. Um, I mean, I, I have big projects in my district that are just electric now, um, residential units, multifamily. So just making sure that we're not putting money on a, you know, receding use? I, I can't speak explicitly to that. Um, but what I can tell you is, is that they, they are bringing a strategy to that. And it's mm -hmm. based on the condition and the use of, of the lines. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the, really the basis of when, where, and how quickly we replace out those gas lines. Um, so it's, it's really based on conditions on the ground and, and the, the strategy involved with it. We want to use the same strategy that we're using for our paving. We don't want to go do utility cuts on a piece of uh, paving that was just done if we don't need to, if we can come back and be able to do that later. But uh, Mr. Sadell may be able to answer that uh, any further. But I can tell you that there is strategy and it's based on conditions and use of the, uh, of the lines. Okay. And then I just had two more questions before we maybe dig deeper into that one. Um, so the $10 million in planning and really appreciated the extra context to that and the different presentations we have. Um, I would love for the city to consider, you know, 10% of that for green projects so that people could bring forward, you know, something that maybe had a higher front end cost that is going to pay off and could, you know, refund um, that bucket with the, you know, cost savings, of, you know, 
from gas or et cetera. Is that something that you guys would be willing to consider? I, I wouldn't want to speak to that directly at the at the podium, but I can mm -hmm. tell you that we can take that back and, and bring it under consideration, bring you an answer at a later date. Thank you. That was Thank it you. for me. Councilwoman Lynch. Thank you. Um, in regards to the, the fleet, you had mentioned that we've got to get RPD up to speed, no pun intended. I'm sure you didn't do that intentionally. Um, with all their their fleet, I think it was a three million dollar allocation. What kind what criteria are we using to determine whether or not those vehicles get replaced? Number one and number two, what do we do with the assets? You know, used cars are selling at like double, triple of what they used to. So, what are we doing with those old assets? Surely we're not sending them to a junkyard. The and then what assets. happens to that turnover profit, or if that if we sell them? Yes, ma'am. Um, the the older assets are sold uh, uh, through auction on gov.gov. Um, or, or a number. There's a number of different websites that you can use to, but our procurement requirements uh, require us to be able to surplus those out and be able to sell those. Uh, unfortunately, while used cars are, are selling for for uh, a decent price at the moment, um, by the time these cars are at their end of use, they're um, they're oftentimes used for parts um, as opposed to actually used for vehicles. Um, and and to the actual uh, the the selection process of when and where and how we uh, replace, again, it's based on conditions and on use of the vehicle. Um, you know, if you have a vehicle that uh, has an accident and is no longer uh, repairable at that. Point, Point in time, then we have to move on from it. And, and oftentimes, unfortunately, with the, the line of work that RPD is involved in, when you're driving, oftentimes, you know, 24 hours a day, nonstop, they, they have more accidents than your average bear. And so that, that's one of the things that we're working through. Madam President, the only thing I would add is, is because a lot of these vehicles wind up in insurance claims, too, you have a, a cycle of trying to replace vehicles while we wait for insurance claim to be processed. But the... Um, the determination when a vehicle has reached, it, reached its useful life has been in fleet for decades now, and we, we are very careful as how we look at that. Uh, the, most, most of when we turn something back in, it has been used up, and, and we try to get some auction value for it. There's, we don't put anything back that can't be reused a couple times. Mr. May, thank you for the presentation. There are a few follow-up um, questions that uh, we will make sure we get to you. Um, I think the Jank Road one was one and we're indicating it was state funded. And so getting that back and then Mr. Jones question about some of the CIP projects, et cetera. So we'll make sure we get those to you and get back. But thank you, thank you. Uh, for a really substantive overview. If I could just, sorry, Madam President. If I could just add to that follow-up list, the gas utility line replacements, um, and then also from an earlier meeting, we had other options for getting the police vehicles, class two and three, um, green fleet quicker, whether that's you know leasing or other options. Thank you. Yes, we'll make sure that Ms. Davis gets those and then gets a compiled list uh, to Mr. May. With that, uh, Mr. Steidel, facilities, repairs of city buildings.
Good afternoon, Madam President, Madam Vice President, members of City Council. My name is Adam Hole. I'm a policy advisor working in support of the operations portfolio, and we appreciate the opportunity today to present on the city's capital budget requests related to facilities as supported by the facilities plan. Before we begin, I'd like to thank Bobby Vincent, Gail Johnson, Lynn Lancaster, as well as others in the Department of Public Works, as well as uh, throughout the city administration, whose work you'll see presented here today. We'll provide some additional context and detail for this later in the presentation, but as an overview for the proposed CIP budget for facilities, we're really speaking about two primary areas. First is the capital maintenance program, which focuses on addressing the issues of today. And the second is the capital planning fund, which asks us to begin planning for the future needs of tomorrow. Now, budget director Jason May provided a really great overview of the capital planning fund in his uh, earlier presentation. And so we won't spend a significant amount of time on that, but we do wanna highlight the importance of that initiative uh, really as a best practice for facilities planning and management. Today's presentation though is, is really going to be largely focused on the capital maintenance program, specifically on our deferred capital maintenance need for facilities and how we plan to address those needs through the city facilities plan. Now to begin with and to provide a bit of background on the need we're hoping to address, the city has a significant capital, uh, a significant deferred capital maintenance need, which we presented at your organizational development standing committee meeting last spring. Uh, the chart at the bottom left of the slide outlines our capital maintenance needs estimates, which includes our fleet replacement liability, our bridge capital maintenance, and the immediate deferred capital maintenance for facilities, which we'll be focusing on as part of today's presentation and providing some additional context on how we arrived at that specific figure. But we did want to provide our facilities needs along with our other capital maintenance needs, really just to paint a more complete picture of the overall significance of this need. Now, we of course did not get here yesterday and we won't be able to address this significant need in one fiscal year budget, but we do believe this needs to be an annual priority and appreciate city council's support via resolution 2021 R023, uh, which was adopted in May of last year and calls for the annual appropriation of operating funds equal to 3% of the estimated tax revenues to the city's capital budget for capital, capital maintenance purposes. Now, as indicated, the immediate deferred capital maintenance need for facilities alone is estimated at $281 million, and that's just the immediate need. We're also tracking projected deferred maintenance needs for the next 5, 10, and 15 years, which combined totals an estimated $380 million. And of course, we should um, be considering uh, all of this as we continue to make our facilities-related planning decisions and the chart at the bottom right of this slide details this projected uh, deferred maintenance out. Now, all of these estimates are the result of detailed facility assessments, which have been conducted over the past several years, and which in, uh, include an analysis of the necessary maintenance costs uh, and have resulted in facility condi condition index ratings for each facility. We'll expand upon that a little bit more uh, and specifically what the facility condition index is uh, later in this presentation, but in short, it's an objective rating that takes into account the projected maintenance needs against the estimated building replacement value. And it's a standard tool used throughout the industry to, to make facilities related decisions. Finally, we would be remiss uh, if we did not mention that these needs, um, unfortunately, will not simply go away if less, left unaddressed. 
fact, as facility condition continues to decrease and inflation rises, we estimate that these costs will only continue to go up as we find ourselves spending more on emergency repairs as opposed to preventative maintenance, uh, City Hall being a prime, prime example of this, which we'll detail a little later in this presentation. So after that bleak update of the situation we find ourselves in uh, currently related to deferred maintenance for facilities, we do have some good news. We have a plan. The City of Richmond Facilities Plan was developed over the last year and included a cross-departmental collaborative effort with uh, the Departments of Budget, Finance, Parks, Planning, Procurement, DPW, DPU, the Public Safety Agencies, as well as the Office of Sustainability, really to begin the discussion of long-term planning for our municipal facilities. The Facilities Plan also takes into account and aligns with other planning efforts, including Richmond 300, which specifically calls for the realignment of city facilities, as well as the city, city center innovation district small area plan, which was approved by council in January of this year. And will also be a reflection of our ongoing space needs studies, uh, really to determine what our future optimal city footprint should look like, especially considering everything we've learned over the past two years of operating during the pandemic while continuing to meet the needs of both employees as well as city residents. We've also participated in the RVA Green 2050 efforts uh, coordinated through the Sustainability Office really to ensure alignment with that forthcoming plan. The culmination of all of this work is the City of Richmond Facilities Plan, which was presented to the Governmental Operations Standing Committee meeting at their February meeting uh, earlier this year, and which is intended to assist the city in making informed, data-driven, and aligned decisions, not only for the near term, but also really looking to outline some of our long-term priorities that will need to be addressed. Similar to the Fleet Unity Plan that we presented on at your work session last Friday, and in alignment with Richmond 300, the facilities plan is organized into big moves. So our plan is to uh, expand upon a few of these big moves as priorities for the upcoming fiscal year on the subsequent slide, but just to briefly summarize each of the seven big moves that are included in the plan. Uh, the first is to prioritize an annual capital maintenance budget related to city facilities. Now, as mentioned, the current estimated need for deferred capital, capital maintenance for facilities is approximately $281 million. And so the first big move is to establish and maintain as a funding priority uh, this need to, to address on an annual basis, which of course is the subject of today's presentation. The second big move pertains to right-sizing and prioritization of facilities based on the ongoing space needs studies, uh, really to better inform decision-making based on projections of future staffing levels, as well as other anticipated needs. The third big move asks us to use the Standard Facility Condition Index, or FCI, to better inform which facilities we may need to prioritize in order to address more urgent immediate needs. And that will include whether it may be more efficient in some cases to recommend facility replacement over renovation. As mentioned, we've got some slides coming up um, later in the presentation, which will detail the facility condition index further uh, and specifically look at City Hall as an example. The fourth big move pertains to the future of the John Marshall Courts building. And as has been previously discussed, and as many of you are likely aware, the current John Marshall Courts uh, courthouse facility is not expected to be able to meet the future needs of the court. And so keeping in line with the city's obligations, 
there have been numerous and ongoing discussions with the various stakeholder groups regarding the future of the John Marshall Courthouse. And we certainly see that as a priority as part of this facilities plan and why it is um, being included as part of the proposed capital planning fund. Similarly, the fifth big move is to locate uh, Richmond Gasworks at the old Fulton Gasworks site. That's a site that Richmond Gasworks currently owns and which is uh, currently under remediation, but which we see as an optimal location for those operations into the future. The sixth big move pertains to the consolidation of citywide warehouse space and asset control technology to realize efficiencies in physical space and supplies, as well as the management of those assets. And finally, the seventh big move is to uh, leverage lessons learned during the COVID-19 pandemic and really asks us to analyze and implement operational efficiencies that we've realized throughout the pandemic. Um, as an example, the success that uh, telework for certain functions uh, has proven uh, in how we want to plan for future facility needs. Now, all seven of those big moves that we've laid out in the facilities plan are, are being planned for and being prioritized. But for the purposes of today's discussion on capital maintenance, we really want to focus primarily on big, big moves one and three. So big move one again asks us to prioritize the annual appropriation toward the capital, capital maintenance budget, which is part of the reason we're before you today. And big move three asks us to use the standard facility condition index rating as a mechanism for prioritization of city facilities with regard not only to maintenance, but also to future planning. So using City Hall as an example, I think that we can all agree, and as Director uh, Jason May spoke about in his previous presentation, uh, City Hall is of utmost significance and it serves as the seat of government for the city. Uh, the operational integrity of the facility is essential to not only city employees, but also to residents, the school board, and many others all of whom rely upon City Hall for, for everything from obtaining a permit to engaging in the public process by attending city council or committee meetings. Unfortunately, when City Hall experiences maintenance issues, be it pipes bursting and flooding several floors or elevators being out of service, it can have a hugely negative impact on the ability of those groups to use City Hall as it was intended. And that, of course, is not to say anything of the costs associated with those emergency uh, maintenance issues. Many of the issues that we've experienced here at City Hall, though, don't come as a great surprise, or at least shouldn't. Of the $281 million in deferred facility maintenance costs uh, that we spoke about a little bit earlier, City Hall accounts for approximately 50 million of that and has a facility condition index rating of 0.24, which equates to poor on the rating scale. So City Hall and many of our other facilities really are in dire shape and in desperate need of attention. So we often talk about the deferred capital maintenance needs and the facility condition and index ratings in these presentations, and we thought it might be helpful today to provide a little bit more context into that, again, using City Hall as an example. So the purpose of the facility condition index is really to provide it a means for objective comparison of a facility or building's condition, not only in the immediate term, but also forecasting future needs. And that allows decision makers to have a better understanding for prioritization and future planning in alignment with other strategic priorities. Now, specifically, the facility condition assessment looks at necessary maintenance in the categories of architecture, plumbing, HVAC, electrical, and elevator, and estimates renewal costs for these areas in the immediate term, as well as over the next five, 10, and 15 years. 
So the $50 million of deferred capital maintenance figure that we've spoken about for City Hall is composed of these specific categories. The facility condition index rating then takes this deferred maintenance estimate and weighs it against the estimated building replacement value to come up with a standardized rating. So as mentioned, City Hall is rated with a 0.24 facility condition index, uh, which is considered poor on the scale. Although to be honest, it's really not that far from uh, critical rating at 0.3. Now we're using City Hall as an example for today's presentation, but we have these ratings for many of our city facilities, several of which we'll highlight on an upcoming slide. Um, it also is important to note this facility condition, condition index um, rating it by itself is not a decision maker, but what it does is it helps decision makers um, to be informed on how best to plan for not only the short term, but also the long term, especially when we begin to look at the combined picture of all of our facility needs. So as we discussed deferred maintenance needs, it's also important to consider what we have done in recent years. For example, we've already spent $11.5 million in capital expenditures on City Hall since fiscal year 2015. Further, many of the facility condition assessments were conducted as recently as 2019 and 2020 and still have very accurate uh, information in terms of depicting the necessary maintenance needs that are left. But of course, these buildings do not exist in a static state. And since those assessments were completed, we've had numerous unplanned maintenance needs. Uh, for example, in 2020, City Hall experienced piping and valve failures, the repairs of which cost just under $300,000. And in 2021, additional piping failures occurred twice in affected separate areas and which resulted in significant water damage to several floors, as well as elevators needing to be serviced and it created significant disruptions to many city employees and, uh, and services that we were trying to provide in the immediate aftermath. Those repairs from the 2021 uh, incidents uh, are anticipated to require several years and approximately $16 million to fully repair. So essentially, with all of the known maintenance items that we know we need to address from the facility condition assessments, coupled with all of the unplanned maintenance that we have and will likely continue to experience, we're basically rebuilding City Hall one emergency at a time. At some point, we may need to ask ourselves over the long term how much we're willing to invest into a facility that's becoming a patchwork of repairs. Now we've used City Hall as an example for this presentation, but as mentioned, we have this type of data for many of our city facilities. The chart here being just a select few, and you can see how we take these data into account uh, and how we're able to compare and prioritize facilities as one factor for future planning. And you can see that like City Hall, the John Marshall Courthouse has a facility condition index rating of poor, in addition to several other uh, city facilities that we see as priorities for the immediate term. Now, for sake of comparison, we've also included a couple of facilities in this list for which these data were already helpful in making informed decisions, and those examples being Fire Station 12 and the Public Safety Building. We were able to use information like this coupled with agency needs, community input, and economic development priorities to plan for the future of these facilities, and, and that work, of course, is currently underway. And that brings us back to our specific proposed budget request for capital maintenance which you can see is prioritized in FY23, as well as subsequent fiscal years, really to begin addressing these critical issues uh, based on all of that prioritization work that we've already completed. And this specific budget request for fiscal year 23 includes over 30 specific projects, 
which we've got listed here, and I'm not going to go through each one of these individually uh, as they're listed in the proposed budget book. But again, these are projects that have been identified as immediate priorities based on those facility condition uh, assessments, as well as other operational needs uh, in order to provide the best possible service to city residents. So we've spoken a lot about deferred maintenance and addressing the needs of today to continue to provide city services. But as mentioned at the start of the presentation, we're simultaneously looking at the long-term future of our city facilities in alignment with Richmond 300 and other planning initiatives. Budget Director Jason May uh, provided some really great information in his earlier presentation on the capital planning fund. And we really see this as a critical step in addressing our facility needs, not necessarily for today, but for the future. The graphic here is simply an illustration of this uh, critical need and, and helps to un, uh, underline the importance of capital project planning uh, and helps to show that when done correctly, proper planning efforts up front will lead to more accurate project scoping, budget estimates, value engineering, and timeline deliverables because we'll have done our due diligence early in the process as opposed to starting down a path without a clear end in sight and needing to constantly make adjustments throughout. So this is another illustration that helps to deliver a similar message. Um, early in the project planning phase, there really is a high variability in the estimated project cost, timeline, and other factors. But given the opportunity to focus first on the best practice of capital project planning, there comes a point in the project development cycle where we can provide much more precision as related to the estimated budget and timeline and help projects from going over budget or becoming behind schedule. And that brings us back to the importance of the capital planning fund because it will help us to make that necessary planning uh, efforts upfront as related to it will help us uh, make necessary planning upfront as as related to key uh, capital priorities. And if a project remains feasible after the planning phase, the project will enter the design phase. And based on the results of the design phase, a cost estimate will be captured in a future budget request. And so this would essentially be using a revolving fund uh, where this funding would be replenished and then be able to be used for other capital planning um, projects in the future. And again, this is in line with industry best practices. So as a more specific example of this, we can use city center. Richmond 300 and the city center innovation district small area plan calls for a realignment of city facilities in this area to reduce the municipal footprint uh, in the city center and allow for other uses while simultaneously considering where throughout the city of Richmond city services really should be located to best meet the needs of residents as well as city employees. Now we have a lot of data and information related to these facilities in their current state and really should begin to ask ourselves, what is the wisest use of taxpayer dollars and the highest and best use of these facilities, not necessarily in the short term, but really looking out over the next 10, 20, or even 30 years? I don't think we have the answer to that question just yet, but that's exactly what the capital planning fund is intended to help us determine so that we can do the appropriate studies and design work to come back before council with a clear and accurate picture of the recommended path forward. For those of you that remember from our presentation on Friday uh, regarding fleet, we presented this same slide and really to close out the presentation and open up for discussion on these key takeaways. The first, investing in replacement or repair of both fleet and facilities is a capital expense and one that we uh, should undertake with regard to industry best practices 
and in alignment with city priorities and planning efforts. The second, uh, City Council Resolution 2021 R023, which was passed by Council in May of 2021, calls for the annual appropriation of operating funds equal to 3% of the estimated tax revenues to the city's capital budget for capital maintenance purposes. And the proposed budget for facilities in alignment with the city of Richmond facilities plan takes into account how we plan to invest in our facilities, not only for the immediate needs of today, but also for the future needs of tomorrow. Third, while it's recommended to use cash funding for fleet purchases, as we discussed on Friday, industry best practices for facilities is really to use uh, strategically uh, uh, strategic revenue and debt. And that is a factor uh, of the relatively longer useful life of facilities as Director um, Jason May spoke about in his earlier presentation. And finally, as we outlined in the, um, or as has been outlined in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act or IIJA, the responsibility of uh, capital asset maintenance is really something that should be prioritized by state and local governments. And that includes uh, regular reporting on deferred capital maintenance, uh, to avoid those costs beginning to pile up without a clear path to address them. And so I'd like to close the presentation with this statement from the Government Finance Officers Association on Capital Asset Management, which really reinforces the industry standard that deferred maintenance does not simply go away if left unaddressed. Instead, the conditions continue to deteriorate um, as the facility conditions decrease and uh, costs of addressing that maintenance will go up as labor costs increase and as inflation rises. And so with that, I will um, conclude there, and I believe DCAO Bob Steidel has some closing remarks. Thank you, Adam. Um, Madam President, I just want to, just for one minute, we started this process when um, uh, Lenora Reed was <clears throat> still here with the city. And she and I talked at length as to what this meant to the financial health of the city. And it has taken us five years to get to this point to be able to truly explain to council what this is. As Adam said, it was not something that was um, created overnight and we will not get out of where we're at in, in a short term. But it is responsible for us as government to be able to respond to what we know here and to and, and to address it. I think. One important thing that we talked about ARP funding and IIJA funding, the federal government is not going to bail us out on facilities. It's just not going to happen. We may get some federal funding for some of our facilities, but the main part is never going to come. We're going to have to raise those dollars ourselves and, and find ways to be smarter in the future. The, the other thing is within a block and a half of here, we have four buildings and as much square footage as the Co-Star building, the new Co-Star building is going to have. That makes no sense. Every piece of data we look at tells us this is this is, doesn't make any sense. We have to find a better way to do it. And so with the information prepared here for you, it gives us the starting point. Plus with the planning dollars that, that uh, has been proposed wisely in the budget, we now have a means where we can truly advise council on the best possible means going forward without unnecessarily wasting dollars or going down the wrong path. The planning fund will allow us if we go down a path and we say, no, that doesn't make any sense. We haven't invested a lot at that point. It gives us the opportunity to say this is the wise use of our taxpayer dollars and gives us the ability to give you what you all need for your decision making as we go forward. So I just wanted to close with that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Stardell and Mr. Hall. I really appreciate the uh, presentation. It certainly answered uh, in great detail my questions relative to 
the state of our 73 facilities and uh, what we're looking at there. We have a few questions. I'll start with Councilwoman Lambert and then Councilwoman Nye. Thank you, and Madam President. Followed by Councilman Jones. Thank you, Madam President. Um, thank you, Mr. Stidell, Mr. Hall, for your presentation. Very informative. Um, this is uh, my second budget go around. Um, I would like to request one, a tour of the CSO um, facility. Um, just as a council person, I want to know what I was advocating for across the street and how, where we are with that. I think it'll be good for myself just so I can see. I know that's a big price tag. Um, I also like to tour the water plant and open for any of my colleagues to join me on another field trip. Um, but also you had mentioned in your presentation, I'd just like to get a complete list. And I think my colleagues would appreciate this as well of all the city of, um, facilities. You have a list here. Hold on. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, complete list of the city assets by facility condition index score. If I can just see that with all of the um, the slide list is several, but um, I just wanted to get a complete list. If we can have that, that'd be great. Madam President, uh, absolutely, we can provide that. We, for sake of the the presentation and not um, uh, putting too much information onto one slide, we we just included a select few, but we we can certainly provide that information. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. And, Apologies. Just to expand upon that, we do have an interactive dashboard. I, I believe as part of the organizational development standing committee presentation last year, we uh, displayed it, um, but we can certainly provide access to that as well. So you've got, um, you can peruse that information at your leisure. Thank you, Mr. Hall. Both and would be great. Councilwoman Nye. Uh, thank you, Dr. Newbell. Um, so your quote that's still up there on the screen, I think. Um, I know I concur. I mean, I, I, I have been asking questions since I got here about how we are maintaining our buildings, especially as Councilwoman Lynch mentioned, the parks and recs facilities there. I mean, Westover Hills Community Center is literally falling apart. Um, so I, I know we use a lot of the ARPA dollars for new facilities, but we are leaving our old facilities in the dust. Um, and it's unfortunate because children are going there and have been for years. So, you know, <laughs> show me a plan that I can get behind to, to make this a better environment for everybody, not just where we're putting new facilities. Madam President, if I may. Calhoun Center is a perfect example. You know, we currently rent the location where Parks and Recreation has its headquarters. We believe we can strategically combine operations there and eliminate eventually the, the entire leasing of the Parks and Recs facility mm -hmm. and then have a facility we won't have to maintain for years to come. There's so many moving pieces in this thing, but yes, we want to come back to you with, with solid recommendations that make good sense to you, I think. Working sessions in your government operations committee or however you want to do it, we need to have continued and, and ongoing, not just budget time, we have to talk all throughout the year. Right. Yes, ma'am. Agreed. And I, I do appreciate the updates you've been giving us at GovOps, and I think the other committee members appreciate it too. Um, and I am very excited about like the overall facilities plan. Um, 
but dovetailing into that with the, I, I think you guys are calling it the facilities planning study. Is that what the 10 million? Okay. No, it, it's a, it's a capital planning study. Uh, okay. And president, it's meant for all capital expenses. Okay. So, I mean, is that, so it's a $10 million allocation for this fiscal year. So then we expend it all during the fiscal year or as things come up, we draw down from it to say, okay, we want to look at X and here we ha we need a half million dollars to plan. Madam President, it's a line of credit. Okay. It's similar to what I get at my house when I want to do major capital in my house. So if we have a project we want to evaluate, we'll use that line of credit mm -hmm. to do that pre-planning phase and do the studies and perfect and put the information together that are necessary before we even call it a capital project. We make a decision by first of all using those dollars. Okay. And, and and you don't even go to you don't even go to scope. You get to the point where you have decided and you can clearly show that it's a project that's worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And then you would capitalize that when you do the capital project, your line of credit is paid back and that $10 million is used over and over again. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So, what the beginning one? Jason. So when we talk about capital, we talk about it in percentages um, uh -huh. and because it, it gives us the ability to compare and contrast different projects. You have some projects cost 10 million another other project costs 150 million. So for an example, we are fully funding fire station 12 this year. Um, it's just under 10 million, but we'll say 10 million just for example. If we're going through the planning process, we determine that there's uh, that it's going to be 10 million and through the, the process of doing the completion. We have inflation, supply chain issues. Other things happen and we have a 10% over overage on that project. That's a million dollars. A million dollars for the city the size of Richmond is probably not something that's going to delay projects. It's not going to put us off. But if we pivot to John Marshall Court that has a very early estimate of 150 million, we have the same situation and we have a 10% overage on that. That's 15 million. That is substantial. That is something that can be that can delay projects for for context. That's one and a half fire stations. So if we know that going into it, that it's going to be the extra instead of 150 through the planning process, we determine that's 165 million is what we think. Then that's something we can bring into that process, into that decision making process. It may not make a decision. It may not be a factor in whether or not you continue to move forward with the project. But at least, you know, going into it, that's 165 as opposed to 150. If you know that at the beginning of the project, we can bring that into the, we can bake it into the pie, if you will, and bake it into the financing of it. But if you go into that project and go fully through it, thinking it's 150 million, and then due to lack of planning or lack of insight, not really lack of it, but just lack of understanding of, of some of maybe the technical issues related to the project or other things that cause an overage on it, that overage for those larger scale of projects has a much bigger context, a contextual impact on the CIP than something of, of a fire station uh, 12 replacement. A million dollars for, for our CIP, are, we're just under a billion dollars this year. It, it's not, not making out a million dollars to be small, but comparatively speaking, relatively speaking to the city, it's not a huge burden. We can probably take that on and be able to move forward. 15 million becomes a different conversation. Okay. Um, thank you for that 
and it does make sense to me for the courthouse because that is something we've been talking about for a long time. For City Hall, and I think I mentioned this at GovOps, I just feel like, I mean, we've been talking about maintenance for years and years and years, and maybe the last six months started hearing about replacement. I need more information before I really jump on board with that. And I would also like to see uh, Mr. Steidel complete his facilities report because this is offices um, and we have lots of empty seats in buildings in our city. And I want to see things a little reshuffled before we use all these tax dollars to, to build a new city hall. As much as I would like one, I just feel like we need to prioritize. I mean, the courthouse is what it is. Like yeah. we know we need a new courthouse, but this, this building is a different animal in my opinion. But I think what we're realizing, Madam President, uh, is is from the studies we have completed, the information we have, why aren't we thinking more about a combined courthouse seat of government in one location rather than having just a courthouse in one location? It would seem to me, and again, to your point, our, our, our seat count is way down. Uh, and of course, if you have a vacant seat count, you also probably have a vacant parking space downstairs too, which drives me nuts. So... The, there are opportunities here in front of us, but if you don't plan them right, we're, we're just we're just going to make mistakes. And I think that's the most important thing is is to to understand how we should deliver services. I mean, some of our services should be to the citizens in the community, not all the way downtown to get to get what you need. So we've got a lot of good conversation to happen between us, but um, you know. I don't see anything wrong with having a seat of government and a courthouse in the same facility. Uh, both have basically the same needs. And we need to explore that very deeply to make sure we're making the right decision. Okay. Uh, Dr. Hey. Newbell, I have two more questions. Do you want me to, do you want to circle back to me? Um, let's go on and take the two. Okay, just then I'm gonna... don't drop me from the queue. I'll try not to. <laughs> Councilman Jones. I was actually enjoying uh, my colleagues' uh, line of questioning, to be honest. Um, <laughs> uh, but just going on with that, um, you know, being good stewards of the space that we have, I know my challenge with the school board is all the vacant seats that they have and how are they planning and redistricting and things of that nature uh, to fill those seats and to really utilize properly uh, the buildings that they have under their stead. And then on our side, um, you know, looking at the pandemic, everyone worked at home, just about. And so I think we have to redefine what <laughs> what work looks like and what remote, there, there's no reason for most of our employees to be in a building, save their managers just want to see them and lay eyes on them. Um, I don't believe productivity uh, dropped immensely because individuals work remotely. Um, and I didn't, I don't have enough employees under my uh, purview to, to make a, you know, <laughs> an organizational wide uh, uh, opinion on the matter. But I, I think that's important as we look to, to the future. Um, and so, you know, hopefully we, we can, I, I don't know, whether it be in GovOps that we kind of ask for, uh, you know, some type of study on remote work and, and flex, just flexible 
spaces and things of that nature to really look at uh, what we do over the next 20 years, because this 100 year uh, pandemic showed us what we are really able to do and how we're able to, um, you know, meet the needs of the day of our constituents, as well as um, <laughs> the mental well-being of of staff and 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 our employees. So, and and, and Miss Nye, that's something I'd love for for us to to kind of talk about in um in, in GovOps at some point. What would that study look like? What would some of the recommendations we would want to get back, or how we would um, put out a resolution for that study, or just make a basic ask one. I don't know if that needs a resolution per se versus uh, just an ask to the CAO to come back with that. Next, um, it, this is something I've always said, Madam President. Um, every, I would be interested to see, I, I haven't toured every floor uh, on in, in this building, even though just about, I would challenge anyone to look at the third floor and how it's how it's been taken care of historically pre flood right um that if we're going to be in here if we are you know the consummate professionals that we are i know at one point i did not want to run meetings in in city hall on the third floor embarrassing and this was pre uh this is pre flood this is pre-pandemic. I know if one or two of us had a meeting in here, good luck. Uh, and there's nine council people <laughs> uh, uh, that that have space up here. And so I, I would just like to say no matter what we do now and or in the future, uh, that we take that into account. Um, city attorney's floor, mayor's floor, and we can just go up. We can just go up. None of them look like the third um, and again, some of that might be council and, and what our proclivities are, what we're open to. Some of that might be, uh, 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 you know, the individuals uh, in the operation side. But at some point, every floor should keep pace with the other floors. Um, and right now, there's too great of a disparity uh, on our floor. Uh, Madam President, and again, I know some people say and may feel, oh, if we do this, the, the papers are going to get upset. I, I really could care less if someone gets upset by us being able to provide a good work environment for those of us that are on city council. Uh, I just think that's important. And I don't think enough has been done and it's taken a flood uh, to kind of actually begin to move that needle on it. I believe some of our colleagues, their offices are entirely too small to actually function and do business. Um, when I was an intern, I had a larger office than, than most of us have, uh, 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 you know, on, you know, on, on that third floor, as well as our liaisons, them being able to conduct uh, the type of work that they need to conduct. Um, and so Madam President, I just hope at some point in time now and in the future, that as we bake in plans um, to look at, again, whether we move, whether we stay, no matter what it is that we do, that there is a plan within um, our facilities plan, within our CIP to, because again, hell, we got a freaking studio upstairs, right? Mm -hmm. 
got a studio upstairs. And I don't know who, whose plan that was. But again, I can't bring business people down to the, to the third floor and sit them in a meeting without feeling somewhat, well, hey, excuse this, excuse that. And again, I'm all for video. I'm a video guy, right? <laughs> but uh, I think on count, and no one else may say this, and that's fine. I, 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 hey, I'll get out here on the ledge by myself. I think we deserve different on council. Thank you, um, Councilman Jones. And uh, I would say that there is sufficient uh, desire to have discussion about uh, how much space we allow, how much space we build, especially in the context of the new normal coming out of pandemic, um, teleworking, et cetera. And so while certainly that can be shared in GovOps, I think um, that is something the entire body would be uh, desirous of hearing how, what is that new normal in terms of office space considerations? And certainly to Mr. Jones's point uh, as well in terms of council and other spaces. Vice President Robertson. Thank you, Madam President. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you all for your presentations. Uh, very beneficial and uh, help a lot in understanding what's actually in the budget book versus what you're presenting to us in presentation. Um, presentations really does bring a whole lot more information that um, that I help that helps a lot in clarifying what, what we have in in the uh, handbook that we actually have achieved and uh, to some degree um, I'll go back and do a more critical review, but uh, some of it is difficult for me to even uh, recognize uh, from your presentation as to what is actually in the budget book. So presentations are extremely helpful. Uh, I want to go, I'm going to go from the presentation handout that we received uh, as it relates to um, the budget and the amount uh, that is in the budget. And I want to focus in on the slide as it relates to facility plan, the big moves. Um, I know that we passed, council has passed a paper requesting that we look at um, use of facilities, right sizing, and some of those uh, comments that um, Councilman Jones just mentioned. Uh, Am I correct in understanding that that is a that's work that is in progress at the present time where we are doing those kinds of assessments and analysis to determine how much office space we need and whether or not there is a change in what we are looking at as it relates to actual office space? Is, is, is it my understanding that we pass a paper to that effect, and that is in process at the present time. Ma'am, I don't remember the paper, but all that work is complete. And in fact, we've made preliminary presentations to GovOps, and, and we can give you anything that you want about space planning and about current needs and what we're recommending as future needs at any meeting you want. So post-COVID, mm -hmm. we have done um, the analysis as it relates to whether or not we are going to be looking at more remote work or in-person work, and that complete analysis is done. 
Man, the so I'll take social services for example. Shonda Giles has looked at pre and post with the with what she has right now at Marshall Plaza, and she's made estimates of what she needs now post and how she's going to reorganize her work. Yes, ma'am. Okay. All right. Well, then um, the right size facilities and parking and and parking from the space needed study. That is that the study that you are speaking to? Yes, ma'am, that's complete. Okay. All right. So then the and I I really then I'd recommend uh, welcome an opportunity to review that more detailly because I guess what I would like to know is how much uh, reduction in space are we looking at that we need as a result of that study, or are we still at the same level of space that uh, we currently have? Um, the studies show us that we have a significant less need, and if so, um, um, what's the difference and and that and is that part of our planning process that we are using now when we start talking about building a new city hall and other facilities that would accommodate that reduction in space based on remote and then if there's a cost that's associated with remote just speaking for facilities so again i'm i'm going to um I'm going to look at Shunda because she's she's you can think of it a little bit differently because they've got their own facility next door. No, I'm, I'm going to have to go to Citizen Service and Response. So Citizen Service and Response currently has 4,126 square feet, and that includes everything for uh, the desks they work at, as well as the filing, workrooms, kitchenettes, staff toilet, lactation room, and janitor's closet. So that's what they currently have. They're proposing, they think in 2041, they'll need um, just about six, uh, 600 more square feet in 2041. However, since the pandemic, Pete has found ways for his people to work remotely and they split their work. So when we have talked about this, looking at his, his needs, he can probably co-locate with the DPU call center, as well as some of the non-emergency call centers, center information. And if we can find a facility to co-locate them, his, his, his square footage goes in half. And 311 is not a good one because you can't, you can't warm seat, well, you can warm seat, but warm seating is usually for somebody doing administrative duties or engineering duties or other things. When they come into the office, they could share a desk. So we're well on our way for these plans and these discussions. Um, we'd be happy to come and show you where we're at. But the whole point of this capital planning study is to then bring you the alternative as to how to make these facilities smaller. For instance, we've looked at this building here. If we decide to rehab this building, I move all of you out of here. I put you in a new building. Let's just say I put you in the James Center, this James Center Tower for two years. You're there for two years. We got this building to the to the studs. We rebuild it. We rebuild the mechanical, electrical, and plumbing. Bring you back in after that. That's about three years from now. But of course, it wouldn't even look anything like it does, except probably this chamber. 
wouldn't look anything like it does because we're in a warm seat, most of your staff. We're going to have a very different way of having meetings. Me meetings would never go above the second floor. Uh, the, the, you, you would never invite the public to go into a space that, that isn't very accessible for, for handicap and for, um, and for just general traffic flow. So we have the information. We, we just need to have those capital planning dollars to bring you more than just Bob here talking numbers off of a chart. You need to see exactly what we're talking about. You need, you need to contextualize it. So we have the data to be able to do it. Good. Uh, well, I'm obviously have not heard it spoken as well and clearly as you have, and I appreciate that because I. For the last two years, we have barely seen each other, much yeah, less time. Yeah, but we, we've, we've been working for the last two years very hard on this. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, um, follow up question as it relates to uh, the courts building. Um, so I see two projects that are really getting a lot of attention, and that is City Hall and the courts building. Um, is there. There's been lots of uh, this building, and as you said, how much how much space do we have in just these four central area blocks downtown? Um, and there was quite a bit of has been quite a bit of discussion about the courts building. Um, are we are we ready to make any move forwards, or are we still? needing to use part of this $10 million to make a determination on costs. Yes, ma'am. That's one of the three big moves of, of that $10 million. We do know several things. We do know that the current courthouse does not meet the basic requirements for security of the Commonwealth of Virginia Supreme Court. We know that, that it does not, and it cannot, and it never will. So that we know. We also know that the courts that are over there, and I believe there's seven courts, six courts over there, um, are not organized the way they would like to be for space for public defenders, space for the Commonwealth attorney, uh, meeting room space over there. We also know that um, that's a really weird lot over there if you've ever seen it. It's, it's, it's an angled lot that, that wasn't anyhow. Someone's architect's good dream, but it's yeah. it as it may. It and it has... Past. It has no secure parking. There is a sally port there for prisoners. Uh, I'm sorry, there's a sally port for people who are going to the courts for whatever reason. But there is not secure parking for judges who have been, who need security requirements. There is no secure parking for um, our jurors. We want our jurors, when they come down to do their public duty, to be able to park conveniently and close by to the courthouse that we're asking them to take their time for to be able to be part of the public service. So that, that facility is just wrong. I can move them out, put them someplace else. I guess we'd have to squish them all into the John Marshall Courthouse because it's the only other courthouse we have available to us. Uh, leave them in, 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 in the desert for three years while we rebuild our building right there. But I don't think that's the right answer for that spot, spot either. I think it's even got a higher and better use. I think Sharon Ebert would tell you there's a higher and better use for that particular block. We've got some other ideas. We need to come and show them to you in conceptual plans. We had thought originally putting them down as a, as a justice campus down on Oliver Hill Way was, was a, a win. Um, that's been received with much resistance from, from the judges and from the staff. Um, 
So we're, we're rethinking all of that. But I, I do believe that the three priority areas for this $10 million planning study, the, the public safety campus, the courthouse, and the city hall, and courthouse and city hall, you can probably think of two of them as the same, will give us an opportunity to bring you back good concepts. Thank you. Just do one follow-up question because the public safety campus uh, that's been mentioned on several different occasions, uh, I agree with the judges at the court. I met with them when we were talking about the small area plan for downtown Richmond, and with that conversation, I, it brought about a significant level of awareness of why it's so essential that they're close to you know, to City Hall and to a lot of other things that are happening that is so related to them effectively being able to get the job done. Um, and I'm so I guess my question is whether or not this public safety campus is all bought into. Is that one conversation? No, ma'am, that, that actually is a little bit different because for public safety, we first of all have to consider first precinct. First precinct is a really big problem for us. It's too small. Space study shows it's totally ridiculous how much work the chief is trying to do out of the first precinct. We have EDI that's underutilized just a block and a half down the street. And we have other city lands that are not too far from first police precinct. Plus, we need a fire headquarters because Chief Carter is renting his, his building that we have to be able to do that. There's, there's an awful lot. The public safety discussion is entirely divorced from talking about courthouses and city hall. That's going to be a, 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 a very interesting conversation to have, but, but it is one that is, is not going to be tied up with a courthouse. There may be a fire station downtown that would be caught up, that could be conversed about with a new courthouse and a new city hall, but it will not be uh, part of the public safety campus. It'll be a different discussion. Vice President and, and uh, Mr. Stidell, Mr. May, Mr. Hall, uh, and members, we have a schedule in time at three. I, we have another presentation. Uh, what I'd like to get agreement on is to have the opportunity for uh, the Department of Public Works to present the questions that we have that we can get those to um, the individuals and get the responses back, uh, if you would be amenable to that. Can I just verbally add my questions now Well, without we, the dialogue? We're going to get them to Joyce so that she can compile a complete list and then get them back out. So I was trying not to, I don't want to lose the questions because I think they are all valuable to the discussion. But at the same time, we, I do want to get through the presentation. Thank you. Is everyone yeah. good with that? Okay. Mr. Hall, uh, Mr. Stidell, Mr. May, please expect additional questions. Thank you for the presentation. This has been um, exceedingly informative and um, look forward for uh, additional presentations, possibly at um, OD. Uh, to provide additional information because all members are very much interested, as you can see, relative to um, this whole facilities um, component. So with that, Mr. Vincent, if you would. 
Good afternoon, Bobby Vincent, Director of Public Works. And I get it. Hurry up. <laughs> well, no, I, no, I'm, no. Not, I'm picking. I'm picking. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we're not wanting to forego. As you can see, um, we're very much interested in each of these areas, especially relative to the budget elements, but also in general. So, no. Yes, ma'am. Okay. I get I'm sorry, oh, Ms. Lambert. Is it just four minutes for him to present? No, okay. he will do his presentation and then we will adjourn. Okay. Well, I'm, I'll just let you know I have questions. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And okay. Mr. Stadale, I have questions for you too, just to put it out there. Thank you. <laughs> okay. And so, Ms. Lambert, if you could also get those questions to Ms. Davis so that we can get. Okay. Thank you. Mr. Benson. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. I'll be as efficient as possible uh, with regards to my presentation. Uh, a new clicker up here. Oh, it was upside down. Okay. Here we go. Um, I'll go in and I'll skip over some of this. Um, this is just, um, you can have a, certainly have a copy of this. Um, our mission is to provide a clean, safe, and healthy environment, and that is, in fact, the um, org chart uh, for the executive team for the Department of Public Works. Many of you all are very familiar with that and our hierarchy. I'm looking at some RVA stats. Uh, many of you are familiar with that as well, but I always like to include that within our presentation um, just because uh, a lot of times people don't understand um, that we have enough roadway to go from Richmond to California and we have enough sidewalks to go from Richmond to St. Louis. Uh, when you put it in that perspective, I think it kind of opens up your eyebrows with regards to the amount of work um, that we have before us within the Department of Public Works. Um, looking at our infrastructure, um, most people don't realize what they're driving over, um, but the Department of Public Works works hand in hand with the Department of Public Utilities and other agencies um, in order to take care of not only what's above ground that everyone can see, but also below ground. And as you can see here, there is a network, not just one or two, but a network of pipes and manholes and valves, every utility um, and its brother more than likely twice within most of our streets um, within the city of Richmond. Now, how does this differ um, from other municipalities looking at the intersection of 7th and Broad in the city of Richmond? Uh, we have 12 manholes in that one intersection alone, four gas and water valves. We have some grass and we also have parking. We have 24 square feet of uh, crosswalks. We also have um, adjacent sidewalks and our buildings come right up to the face of the uh, public right away. When you look at the same street, um, but in Henrico County at a very busy intersection of Cox and Broad, they don't have any crosswalks. They have two manholes. They only have four gas and water valves. What is this saying? This is saying that um, uh, when they have to excavate, they're excavating in grass. That's the reason why we have a lot of scars in our streets, because the Department of Public Utilities and or Dominion Power and or Verizon and or Comcast and or ZNet and or anybody else who has a pipe or a conduit underneath the ground, they have their only mechanism to getting to it um, is to excavate our streets. Looking at the city of Richmond and our street network. Uh, we were in extremely bad shape in 2018. As you can see, 30% of our streets were in very poor and or below condition. 34 of them were fair. 35% roughly were satisfactory and above. 
when you move forward, and I want to thank you all for working hand in hand with the administration in order to provide us with approximately $20 million per year in paving, we can now look at our city and see this. The green is now outweighing the red, and we are steadily moving forward. Um, and we're doing so. The, if you all recall, the city auditor several years ago indicated that we needed $277 million. We agreed with him on that. We actually came up with $284 million. That's because of the amount of reconstruction work that was needed throughout our streets. But we are paving our streets. But keep in mind, we're only going down two inches. Um, anything that is sub-based below that, we still have work yet to do. But we are making an impact, which we felt that we could with an investment of $20 million per year. Now, how does that $20 million impacting us at this point in time? 25% of our streets are poor and below, 13% are fair, and 61.7% of our streets are now satisfactory or better. I would challenge anyone who lives within the city of Richmond um, to drive on their way to work or on their way home or on their way wherever else they're going, that they're not going to come across a street that's been paved over the past three years in the city of Richmond. It may not be the street that they live on, but they certainly are driving across some smooth asphalt somewhere within our city. Looking at how it's broken down by council district, um, as you all are very aware, we have nine council districts. That's a total of 2,500 lane miles. The difference in the lane miles between the 1,800 that VDOT um, pays us for and the 2,500 that we actually have are turning lanes as well as our parking lanes. As you all know, we have to pave curb to curb. We don't just stop at the turn lane. We don't, and we do not not pave our parking lanes. So we have 2,500 lane miles within the city of Richmond. Now, how is that broken down by council district? This chart is an illustration of the percentage of poor, fair, and good streets within each council district. For example, 33% of the streets in the seventh district are considered poor. 16% in the fourth are fair, and 71% in the third are considered to be satisfactory or better. This is with us spending anywhere from 15 to $20 million annually. The makeup of that money comes from a combination of factors with the CIP, um, as well as with um, other investments that we have throughout the city of Richmond, um, as well as with the Department of Public Utilities. And as you all can see, we got a little bit of good and a little bit of bad scattered throughout the entire city of Richmond. Um, and so if this thing looked like um, 11% straight down, that means that I would not be doing my job because I would be paving based upon politics and not paving based upon need. So as you can see, we're paving a based upon need throughout our city. This is um, what our pothole program looked like a couple of years ago. Uh, we were filling 24,000 potholes, 25,000 potholes. Then you all gave us $20 million and everybody went crazy and started calling in pothole complaints. So we went up to 34,000 potholes in 2019. What happened after we started slapping down some fresh asphalt in 2019? All of a sudden, our streets started to get better. 15,000 potholes in 2020. Last year in 2021, 7,846 potholes. Okay. And these numbers are not just reflective upon the amount of potholes that we actually repaired, but it's also uh, reflective upon the amount of pothole requests that we actually received. Now, how are we doing this in an equality and equity state? Um, I love this map because this map shows our city, it shows the dynamics of our city of Richmond. And it shows that we have red everywhere. We have green everywhere um, to the map on the left, which is the way that we're paving. When you look at the map to the right, that's based upon our median household income. As you can see, even within many of the red areas, 
we have green streets. In many of the green areas on that map to the right, we have red streets. In other words, we're looking at the PCI rating and we're looking at the way that our citizens move throughout our city in order to base our paving um, program. Looking at the Office of Equitable Transit and Mobility, they are certainly helping us with regards to moving people throughout the city of Richmond in a fair and equitable way. Equitable way. This office was um, generated a few years ago and our office manager, um, uh, Ms. Darona Moore-Clark, she's been doing a great job with regards to getting out there to the public. GRTC buses have never been free. They've never been free. And right now, anybody can get on the GRTC bus and ride anywhere within that network and get there for free. might take them a little longer because we don't have bus stops everywhere, but they're able to get on it and ride for free. Transportation matters most to those who are low income, disabled, or elderly. The city will continue to listen and shift our built environment to provide greater access to our people who live and work within our city of Richmond. Looking at our additional funding opportunities, as Jason indicated earlier, we have well over $400 million worth of projects that's been taking place within the streets of the city of Richmond. Um, they come from CBTA local funds, CBTA regional funds, smart scale. In other words, the White House to the White House to the aluminum house <laughs> is basically where we've been getting our funding from. OK, so how much money? This $450 million has been broken down with smart scale programs, highway safety improvement programs, congestion mitigation on down. $450 million in state and federal transportation funds leveraged against just $21 million that we, the city of Richmond, have had to put up in order to get that money. Okay, but we do, we cannot just delete stuff because we get a lot of money from these other areas. We have to have matching funds. And here recently, many of our projects that were um, placed on the table for us in 2018 and 2019 are now beginning to cost us more money um, because of fuel and construction costs. Um, you can see those plans at the bottom. That's Hall Street uh, Road, which is going to be done in three different phases. You know, one of the phases we're ready to rock and roll once we acquire a little bit more land and we'll be ready to go. And Councilwoman Lai, I'm, um, I'm sorry, I want to let you know that we're going to do the same thing with regards to um, Jank Road. OK, so I give you an update on Jank Road. Um, a lot of times with our projects, they take time because of the utilities underneath the ground. Um, particularly dealing with sanitary sewers, um, because sewers, they have terracotta. It's very difficult to be able to identify what's underground when you're looking at something that cannot be detected uh, from metal detectors and or through flow. Looking at the complete streets, this is something that I asked you all to entrust our department with on last year, and you all did that. And I think we came through with flying colors, continuing to turn our maps green, continuing to add bike lanes, continuing to um, provide traffic calming in every council district throughout the city of Richmond. In fiscal year 21, we had $13 million that was broken down primarily with paving and sidewalks. In fiscal year 22, we asked you all to trust me a little bit. We only had 8.1 million in paving, 4 million, I'm sorry, 4 million in paving, um, 1.9 million in sidewalks, and the others were broken down. But what we did do is we utilized the additional funding that we're getting from other revenue sources in order to make up the difference with regards to traffic calming, to make up the difference with regards to paving, as well as to make up the difference with regards to pedestrian crossings, as well as bike lanes throughout our city. We're coming to you all this year in terms of working with our budget department. I want to thank them very much so for having an understanding of the city's needs. We're requesting $17 million, 10 of which for paving, two of which for sidewalks, and the rest is so forth.
looking at our sidewalk maintenance program, uh, which has um, hurt the city of Richmond as far as I'm concerned in terms of um, um, negative publicity through the press over the years, we're making an impact. You all um, provided funding for us last year in order to bring people on board, and we've hired 20 individuals. Uh, we've lost a few individuals, but we're trying to get our way, make our way up to 30. Very difficult to hire at this point in time. Um, people have their choices with regards to where they want to work. The city of Richmond is one of those choices, but they're also choosing other um, areas as well. So what are we doing? Looking at 2019, uh, we only were completing a total of 207 sidewalk requests. In 2020, we only were completing 178 requests. Thanks, you all, for giving us those funds in 2020. Looking at 2021, we were able to complete over a thousand sidewalk requests. This is making a huge impact um, throughout our city of Richmond in the areas of brick maintenance, as well as in the areas of concrete maintenance. Looking at our current backlog, we still have 2,100 open concrete tickets and about 500 brick tickets that are being completed, anywhere from 15 tickets per week um, on up to about 20 some tickets per week. And we're also involving contractors as well in order to make a difference. So. Those of you all who do have sidewalks, which there are sidewalks in every district, although there are many districts that are still built in accordance to how Chesterfield County was designed, uh, where there are, in fact, a lack of sidewalks. This program is mostly geared um, towards maintaining the sidewalks that we do, in fact, have. Looking at that sidewalk investment, um, 400000 in, in 2020, 765000 in 2021, and we're looking at $2.4 million in 2022. The city block equivalent, because square yards doesn't mean a whole lot to a lot of people in, in here at this point in time, um, whether you're technical or not. But looking at city blocks, we all can relate. Um, in fiscal year 2020, we repaired 21 blocks of sidewalk equivalent. In 2021, 38 blocks. When fiscal year 2022, we're looking at making repairs to 141 blocks of sidewalk throughout our city of Richmond. The um, illustrations to the right is one of our contractors that we're working with. Who are who is enabling us to be able to close a lot of tickets as well due to the fact that they're shaving um, the concrete sidewalks instead of having to do a full replacement, we're able to shave it and make it safe. Um, and this is a practice that's not only being done in Richmond, but it's also being done um, throughout the United States of America. Looking at how we're working with Vision Zero, which is very simple. Um, that's a pledge for us to wear our seatbelts, avoid distractions like texting and talking on the phone. Uh, we want to share, make certain that we pay attention by sharing the road with cyclists and pedestrians. Never drink and drive and drive the speed limit. So if you wear your seatbelt and you're not driving while you're drunk and texting, chances are you're not going to hit anybody. It's that simple. Um, the videos that I've been seeing from accidents that have been occurring throughout the city of Richmond that we oftentimes cannot share uh, with the public are horrifying. They're horrifying. It's very difficult um, for our drivers, and it's also difficult for our pedestrians if you're driving drunk and or if you are impaired and you're walking. People have to wind up doing better. We have to be safe, and we have to do our best part in terms of putting our best foot forward in order to provide safe passageways for people. We're looking at a budget of about $250,000 in terms of implementing um, safe practices throughout the city this year. We're installing 60-plus um, traffic calming measures throughout the city. We've already installed over 300. We have 115 chokers, 124 speed tables, and so forth, as you can see in the map um, below to your right. Every council district has been impacted by traffic calming. And we're doing this in a very 
um, efficient manner because we're coinciding with our paving program. So when we put in a speed table with our paving program, we're spending anywhere from $2,500 to $5,000 per speed table. If we were to just do speed tables outright, we're looking at about ten dollars to $15,000 per speed table. Why is the cost difference? Because of the mobilization. In terms of bringing out a milling machine into a paving machine and a dump truck, um, you all have seen the type of construction that that takes. It costs money to move those pieces of equipment. Looking at our neighborhood traffic studies and speed management, okay, we have about 150 locations throughout the city where we've been managing the speed. People are speeding. People are driving fast. People are driving reckless. Okay, why? I don't know. They want to hurry up and get where they're going. But at the bottom line is, is that this program represents a commitment by the Department of Public Works with its partners to promote and maintain the safety and livability of our city neighborhoods. I live on Barton Avenue, 2600 block. A car hit another vehicle mid-block, Saturday night, 4.30 in the morning, and flipped over. Barton Avenue, you, you're lucky if you can go 27 miles per hour without feeling um, some discomfort. Mm-hmm. Okay? Everybody had it on their door cam, on the ring, and everything. Mm-hmm. Okay? People have got to slow down. People have got to stop drinking impaired. When you look at this map um, at the top right, which is the type of data that we have for those 150 locations throughout the city of Richmond, that particular location right there is Huguenot Road. Everything that you see that's not green is somebody's speed. Mm. It's a 24-hour time period. As you can see, we're glad to see a little bit of yellow. <laughs> but if it's not green, that means that they were speeding. Mm. If they're in the dark um, um, gold, that means they were driving more than likely at the speed to where they could have been pulled over. If you read, you were shown the flying. Okay. Qualifying streets for this type of work, residential streets, minimum traffic volumes and street section length, documented need for calming, speed samples are used um, to measure the overall driver compliance, et cetera, et cetera. We have a team of very, very, very well-educated individuals who do nothing but look at the conditions of each and every street throughout the city of Richmond, and they come up with excellent recommendations. And I trust them 99% of the time. I actually trust them 100% of the time. But it's that percentage of time where I got to say, no, we can't do that. We have to do this. Everybody has that person. Unfortunately or fortunately for the Department of Public Works, that person is me. Looking at our bridge maintenance division, something that we all drive across every single day, more than likely in our city of Richmond, and we take for granted. Okay? And it's not just the big bridges. We have over 84 structures throughout the city of Richmond. Nobody probably would have been able to guess that. But every time you drive over an overpass, every time you drive over a creek, every time you drive over a CSX railroad, you're driving over a bridge in the city of Richmond. Okay? We maintain not just the um, big bridges in terms of the Lee Bridge, the Manchester, and the Mayo Bridge, but we maintain 81 other bridges that are located throughout our city of Richmond. We're also responsible for inspecting those bridges within the Department of Public Works. Looking at this listing here, this listing here is an indication of our bridges that are structurally deficient. Okay, There's a lot of them. Structurally deficient doesn't mean that you can't drive across the bridge. That just means that we have to maintain a, a good eye on it. and they, We may very well be inspecting that bridge once a year instead of once every two years. But please keep in mind that these bridges require maintenance. I know that the Mayo Bridge has had a lot of time in the news here recently, but we have more bridges than just the Mayo Bridge that are structurally deficient, that are scaling. P3 
pieces of concrete falling off. Angle iron rusted away. Rebar showing. Looking at a right-of-way maintenance division, how this is the division that we use to work with the developers. These are the guys that come to you all to say we're not treating them fairly. I get it. Nobody wants to have to put in an ADA ramp. Nobody wants to have to go back up on their property in order to provide the public right-of-way. But this is the division that does this. We work with the um, code enforcement. We also work with planning on a daily basis. In 2021, we reviewed 1,700 working the street permits. 51% of those permits involve sidewalk closures. We have to continue to be able to move people around. So we've been making the contractor put in um, um, walkability and make our sidewalks contiguous where possible. We've also been making them do upgrades within our public right-of-way. That way they're not calling us after installing a $28 million building they're calling us to do $75,000 worth of sidewalk work. That makes absolutely positively no sense. This is also an indication that when we say no, we're not going to put in a sidewalk, we're saying no for a reason. Because when you look at some of these um, pictures where construction has, in fact, been taking place, if we were to put in a sidewalk, looking at those top two pictures, um, which is Scott's addition, if we were to put in a sidewalk there three years ago when it was just a warehouse, our money would have went away. Okay. Would have went to that. We are working with the public with regards to installing parklets um, and special use permits and planner developments. Looking at some of the additional indirect benefits of our that, um, program challenges, some things that we have done to make an impact on our service deliverables. Uh, we came up with a bulk and brush program, which dropped our ticket um, amounts from 14,000 per year down to last year we received 15. If any of you have been in the city of Richmond longer than five years, you remember that we used to always have issues with regards to bark and brush, mm -hmm. um, not in one area of the city, but throughout the city. And it was PALS um, that was there for months on end. We no longer have that as a major issue. The majority of you all don't even get phone calls anymore about bark and brush. And I thank you for entrusting us uh, with this type of program, alley, alley maintenance program. Five years ago, we weren't able to grade alleys in the city of Richmond. Why? Because people was those people were out collecting leaves and filling potholes. Now they're able to gravel alleys year-round. Now we're only receiving 549 requests for alley maintenance per year. We're grading over 1,500, which we have a total of 3,200 alleys in the city of Richmond. Now I've already told you about the pothole requests that have plummeted. Looking at how we maintain all of this data, we do it through GIS, so we know exactly where we're going. We know exactly how long it took us to do what we needed to do. We know the seasonal trends and everything else with regards to what's coming through. Our people are walking around with smartphones when they finish a work order, whether it's cutting grass, whether it's filling a pothole. Only thing they do is press send. And at that point in time, it indicates what work was done where. So we're getting smarter by utilizing technology throughout the city of Richmond in almost every facet of the Department of Public works. These are some of the associations that we are, in fact, working with. American Society of Civil Engineers, American Public Works Association, where we have now received our fifth accreditation, which is a national thing. Uh, we have presenters um, at Distracted Driving Summit, um, the Virginia Highway Summit, NACTO, we're members of ITE, as well as ENO. And we've also been presenting for the past um, several years um, working with uh, Virginia Travelers. 
this is my presentation. I know that you all probably have some questions. I'm a little hoarse now because I was talking really fast trying to get through it. Um, but hopefully it was made very clear to you all with regards to the challenges as well as what the Department of Public Works is in fact doing. And hopefully it provided you all with a better understanding of what we do and the magnitude that we have to do it with. So at this Ma point in time, Madam President. If you sure. Ms. Vincent, thank you. Um, my question will take longer than we have allocated, so I will let you know that I'd like to get with you right after this relative to um, funding allocation in this fiscal year to mitigate the uh, PCI condition on a third of the streets. Yes, ma'am. Okay. And I know we've been working on it consistently, but this, and it's not not just in my district, but the streets that are rated poor and below across our city footprint. Well, I can give you that answer in about seven seconds. We're okay. Paving, we're, we're paving 33 percent of Church Hill this year. So, And thank you for that. I still have other um, districts that have significant, mm -hmm. uh, when I look at PCI condition, I'm looking at 30.9, I'm looking at 27.7, you know, so I'm looking across and wanting to get a sense of the timing and funding allocation that you have. And I know you've taken a look at this and yes, um, really chased it out and how we'll systematically work to address um, the condition of the streets across and, our city. And I guess one thing to help you all is that we have 148 neighborhoods throughout the city of Richmond. And to pave a neighborhood goes anywhere from 350000 up to $1.5 In the high-density areas, such as where you Mm -hmm. um, live as well as with Councilwoman Robinson is normally about a million to 1.5 million. In some of the areas that's a little bit more scattered out, like uh, Councilmember Jones, as well as uh, Weaver Chambers District, is normally about 400,000 per neighborhood. So keep in mind, we have about 148 neighborhoods. We have a long ways to go, but right. we've been making a dent. So thank you all very much for that. Okay. And so for, and I'll, I'll just come back to you for this fiscal year, we have delineate, you have delineated in your budget. Uh, for DPW and across the city, the funds that will be utilized to address um, uh, the streets. Yes, ma'am. Okay. And so we can follow up with you for greater specificity for anybody for the district. Yes, ma'am. Okay. I think I saw Councilwoman Nye, uh, excuse me, Councilwoman Lambert, uh, Vice President Robertson, Councilwoman Jordan, Oh, yes, I was saying I'm looking at you, Councilman Jones, and I saw your hand, but you're you're not lit up on this. And then Councilwoman Lynch. OK, <laughs> Councilwoman Lambert. Thank you, Madam President. And thank you, Mr. Vincent, for your very fast talking presentation. We really appreciate <laughs> you. Um, and thank you for all that you do, especially in the third district. I know sidewalks was a major concern for um, my area. Um, I just this is a question you don't have to answer now. This can be um response later, but I just want to know how are we strategizing the trees that have been planted that are really the cause of a lot of these sidewalks that are being raised and we have to redo. Um, if you could just shed some light on how we're working with our city arborists and so forth in that nature with that. Um, and then also the speed tables. I know we are at a point now where we can um, put speed tables in construction zones and in school zones. Um, this is one way to garner some revenue. Um, if you can just provide an update, you know, where we are with that in regards to the construction zones and everything that's going on in the city to help curb the speeding. That's another major um, 
question and concern of public safety that's going on throughout the city, but also definitely the third. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Councilwoman Lambert. Council uh, Vice President Robertson. Thank you, Mr. Vincent. Um, I will forward my specific questions to Ms. Davis, but I want to say thank you, and I want to thank you for the presentation, and not only and, and just the, uh, the way that the presentation has been made to show that when we make the investments uh, that your department has used those investments well and has significantly reduced uh, the number of uh, calls that we get for services. Um, and I just want to encourage you to continue to uh, keep us informed that, you know, if those investments are not made, we don't want to, we want to continue to make progress and moving yes, forward. And um, sometimes we, we make changes in investment strategies. And, but I, we are trusting you to keep us um, moving forward and continue to make the great progress that you've made. And, um, and it, it, it shows, it makes a difference. Our, our city looks much, much cleaner. It, mm. The streets are much better. Um, and um, in your work uh, speaks volumes to um, wise investment that the city has made. Thank you for your Thank service. You. Thank you. Um, I believe Councilman Jones and then Jordan and then Lynch. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Madam President. Mr. Vincent, appreciate your hard work and um, the attentiveness of uh, you and your staff. Um, again, I'll reiterate um, just up front again um, what's in one district on one street. We'd love to see those in all the streets. Um, and so we could talk about that offline. Um, how are how are complete street projects going to be prioritized? How are complete streets? Yeah. How are those projects going to be prioritized? Um, it, de it depends upon the definition of the complete streets. Some of our projects are actually um, presented um, to us from a state and or federal level. So with most of those, they don't go into the neighborhoods unless they're collector streets. Um, they typically stick with some of the larger um, uh, major and or minor um, arterials. Um, but when we look at a complete street, like we look at Warwick Road, um, we're taking a look at the speeding. We're taking a look at the traffic volume. We're taking a look at the connectivity um, with regards to how many neighborhoods are actually impacted by those streets. And we don't want to put in bike lanes where people aren't riding bikes. We want to give people the opportunity, but we want to make certain that we install bike lanes in neighborhoods that give people the opportunity to ride bikes, but also that it's going to be utilized. So Warwick Road, ironically, was actually chosen as one of the streets to try to narrow the vision of the people that are driving it, as well as to increase the amount of pedestrian um, activity. We looked at Broad Rock Park, and it was going by Broad Rock Park as well as the fire station. So Warwick Road was one of those streets that actually fit the criteria for us to come in and put us close to a complete street without streetlights, um, um, without additional streetlights as possible. So we're taking a look at all of that in addition to economic development. Okay, we know that pedestrians um, especially in a lot of our most vulnerable neighborhoods. Um, we know the difficulty in navigating some of our roadways mm -hmm. from a multimodal standpoint. How can we prioritize the sectors of the city that have less or non-existing sidewalk infrastructure? It's going to take more money because of the amount of infrastructure that's needed to install that infrastructure. 
So in terms of working with the Department of Public um, Utilities and seeing what we can pipe instead of having it open covert uh, would be um, um, one way that we can wind up taking a look at, um, at doing some of those projects. Very similar to um, to Hay Road. Okay, and, and if we could get a, 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 I'm assuming there's a comprehensive list of complete street projects that are planned. Yes, sir. If we can get um, a copy of that after this, that, that would be great. Last thing, uh, varying the lines on Hall Street uh, as part of the improvement plan, What? How, how do we determine whether or not, as we talk about future projects, as we talk about what we want the city to look like 10, 20, 30 years from now, is burying um, the lines, is that just simply about money or is that still about the vision of a particular area? I think it's a combination of both. Um, but the vision right now that the Department of Public Works has for Hall Street is very similar to that image of Malothian Turnpipe, uh, where we're trying to help to mitigate um, traffic, number one, um, increase um, pedestrian um, usage, number two, and also to make certain that we have uh, uh, infrastructure that supports economic vitality. So my envision of um, of Hall Street is that it would mirror um, Malothian Turnpike. And uh, I can see that happening within the next 10 years. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Councilwoman Jordan, and then Councilwoman Lynch, and then we'll wrap up. Great, thank you. Um, you know, on the topic of trying to make safer streets and get people driving slower, we've had a lot of discussions. I think it was in governmental ops about the possibility of reducing some of the speeds along our streets in different areas. So I would be interested. I would got muted. <laughs> Not today, but thinking about if we're going to move forward with that, make sure we have money to update the signage. And then I think some of our signage in general, there is some like visual clutter. If like what the plan is, like, do you, as you're doing a street, do you go through and remove old signage? Like, is that something you need a budget item for? Um, but mainly I was asking about a budget for new signage. If we do go forward with um, 20 mile an hour zones and some of the different streets. And I know Councilmember Jones had a, a different paper in for another street adjustment speed wise. Then separate to speeds and signs for speeds, um, trees. So I would love to see, and I've already talked to um, Mr. May about this, an urban forester position, a more of a leadership position to oversee the new urban master plan. And I think there had been some confusion about whether or not, um, you know, that position can be funded with ARPA dollars, or maybe not confusion, but just questioning of what the best way to go forward with that is. So that's something that I'm, you know, very much interested in. And I would leave it at that for now, just in general, like trees, because do we need another arborist? I mean, certainly it costs us a lot in damage. Mm -hmm. We have way more trees than we can get to. Mm -hmm. So are we giving enough money to that as a topic? Thank you. You want to welcome. Um, I guess to start off with trees, we have um, just over 80,000 trees um, located within the city of Richmond. We know what each one of those 80 trees, species, and or origin is. Um, so that's the good news. We have a complete inventory of our trees. Um, I think it was about six years ago, we only had two arborists. Now we have four. 
So we are moving in the right direction there with regards to having arborists. Um, uh, right now, what I'm actually trying to do is because we have 120,000 tree sites located throughout the city of Richmond is looking at how can we backfill those 40,000 um, and do it in a responsible way. Um, so we're looking at trying to um, do more planting and do more pruning and removal of less trees unless those trees have outgrown their use. In other words, when they planted Monument Avenue, you know, a hundred and some years ago, you know, it looked beautiful. You know, you look at all the old pictures and now you can see that the trees are growing out into the street. They planted the wrong trees, but they didn't know. You know, it was trying to make it look pretty. But now what we're doing, when you see um, crepe myrtles being planted within the public right of way, it does look pretty and stay pretty. And it's not growing and turning up our utilities underneath. Um, and it's also not turning up our existing infrastructure with regards to sidewalks. So um, we are looking at seeing what we can do with regards to um, rubber sidewalks um, um, or using tire material for some of our sidewalks because we have to maintain that three foot um, um, width for ADA um, compliance throughout our city of Richmond. Um, we also want to remove those trees that we know that are dead or dying. Um, the problem is, is that a lot of times when we have major storms that come through, it's not the trees that's dead or dying that's falling. It's the trees that's healthy because they have enough of a canopy within them where the wind gets up in it and they blow down. The little naked dead tree, he's still standing up at the end of the storm. So, you know, we have our hands full with regards, you know, to the decisions of the priorities there, but we are working on it. More money is always going to be a benefit. Um, but we need to make certain that we put forth the correct amount of dollars. And that urban forester position will more than likely be something that will come through our state maintenance funds and not through opera dollars. That's something that we can certainly take a look at. Thank you, Mr. Benson. Councilwoman Lynch. Um, first and foremost, Mr. Vincent, it was a wonderful presentation. Thank you. And thank you for all the work that you do. Um, you. It really has been amazing to see the improvement from when I first came to Richmond in 2005 to where we have landed now in our host of services that you provide. Um, so it's just been really wonderful to watch. Um, my question is about um, trash. And I know um, you and I promoted the good work of the bulk trash pickup folks um, last week. Um, you know, what can we do to improve the um, the infrastructure to support cleaner neighborhoods? Um, you know, as you know, this is something that we all struggle with in all of our, um, I think there's not one of us, um, maybe in the first district, <laughs> there's not one of us that doesn't have um, litter and ground litter as a problem in, in our neighborhoods and our thoroughfares. Um, you know, we've got trash cans that, um, um, you know, some of our, our folks have been trying to do the best that they can with their personal trash cans or adding a trash can to a neighborhood as we will sometimes do with our district funds. But what what are your thoughts and suggestions and um, how can we fund that change in this budget? I really think that um, when it comes to litter, because most of the issues now that we're dealing with are, are more litter than, than, you know, mounds of trash. We did have mounds of trash some years ago, but now it's litter. And uh, my recommendation is shame. You should shame the people um, that the trash and or the litter whose house it is in front of. And so I'm a, I'm a firm believer of having block captains. Um, when I lived in Churchill, I would go out and I would get my shovel 
And uh, it was contagious. My neighbor would come out and help me. Another one would pull up and say, hey, thank you, you know, Mr. Vincent, for, you know, for cleaning this up. But it becomes contagious when you're cleaning up. You want to be as good or better than your neighbor. So if I come home and my neighbor cutting his grass, you better believe I'm going to start cutting my grass. But if my neighbor don't care and some people, if your neighbor don't care, you don't care neither because you're doing better than your neighbor. But what type of goal is that? So I believe that you all should work with your civic association presidents and get them to establish block captains that can go out there one house or it might be the same house going out there on a weekly basis, making certain that they clean up because it's impossible for us to perform street cleaning, um, you know, in, in, in every block of the city of Richmond um, on a regular basis. Uh, we have still some areas where you have um, people who are breaking the law um, and they would take the items that they're breaking the law with and had it in our sewer system. They're had it in our drop inlets. Um, and it makes it very difficult for people to go through and clean that. And they'll come through and they'll let them know, don't clean that up. But if Ms. Johnson is the block captain, Ms. Johnson know what to do with regards to keeping her street clean. So um, I implore you all to please work with your civic association presidents and pass that um, idea on to them. It's been working in other communities. And I think it can work here within the city of Richmond. Thank you. Mr. Vincent, I want to say thank you for the presentation. Um, I want to say thank you for your incredible responsiveness, not just to me, but all, to all council members. Um, I want to thank you for the citizens for whom I get great accolades on the work that's happening along the corridor with the lighting and street paving on 25th Street all the way from the highway, getting off the highway down to the river. And uh, look forward to we, we do have a few questions, as you heard, that will come via uh, Ms. Davis to you. And I certainly look forward to following with, up with you as well. But thank you. And your staff um, as you. well, just incredibly responsive. Thank I, you. I appreciate you all. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Members, that now concludes the presentations for this budget work session. Uh, this budget work session stands adjourned. Thank you.